Welcome to the Bader-Meinhof Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader-Meinhof. This is the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Uh, we talk about the Bader-Meinhof Gang, left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, and other related ephemera. On today's show, we're speaking with Larry David Young, who was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany at the Ige Farben building, which was the fifth corps headquarters for the U.S. Army in Europe. And he was an MP in charge of a security detachment. And he was a direct witness to the Bader-Meinhof gang's um, very first deadly bombing part of their May campaign of terror um, in 1972, where they um, blew up many buildings, killed many people all across Germany. Um, and this particular bombing um, killed Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist, who is a decorated Vietnam veteran. And it was obviously a very, very sad and tragic event. And Mr. Young has some extremely vivid memories of that particular day. It's a very long interview. I forewarn you, you feel free to try and skip around. Um, but he does have some amazing stuff to say, and it's worth it if you're interested in this subject to listen to what he has to say. And, and, um, cause a lot of what he's talking about is completely new information that has never really been shared elsewhere before. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed conducting the interview. We're speaking with Larry David Young, who was a very specific direct witness to the um, bombing at the Ige Farben building in Frankfurt in 1972. And I was going to talk with Larry to learn a little bit more about his experiences. So you sent me an email a couple days ago detailing your experiences. What what was your position in the military in 1972? I was a uh, Buck Sergeant E-5 uh, ship supervisor. What does that mean? MP detachment. Okay. For that building. So you were in charge of the military police protecting that building, or or what was that? That's correct. I guess the uh, uh, civilian counterpart to that would have been probably like the park police for the Capitol building, something like that. And what was, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what what the Ige Farben building was and what what military was housed there and and um what what we were doing um in this giant building in uh in Frankfurt. Okay, the the building was spared by Eisenhower during World War Two. He wanted a headquarters building there and it ended up being the uh fifth corps headquarters. Now fifth corps was one of two corps in Germany after the war, fifth corps and seventh corps. And uh that was the the building. Uh the building Prior to the war, uh, was a so-called uh, paint factory, uh, and some of the Germans I talked to there uh, seemed to think they probably made the the uh, nerve gas they used in the prison camps, but I'm not sure that that was ever determined for a fact. But the headquarters building had been there since probably around 1945, and uh, remained up until the fall of the Soviet Union, and that that particular. Uh, core was moved back to the states, and the building um, is now a, a, a college, I believe. And yeah, you're exactly right. And the um and this this annex in the back, which is sometimes called the casino, was the officers' club at the time, correct? That's correct. Now I never heard the term casino. Now they had bazaars there occasionally, and mm-hmm. they they would invite in the local uh, uh, vendors. 
you know, to have their wares out in that club. And it was a large, it was a large club, and but I never heard the word casino. There was no gambling in there, or machines or anything like that. Sure. So it was just a, just the officers' club. So when we say officers' club, what does that mean? It was uh, was there food and drink served there? Was it? Yeah, like- it was like a, a nice restaurant. Uh, like I said it was large. It would probably hold four or five hundred people. Hmm. And uh, generally in the afternoon, the uh, officers in the nearby area would gather there and wind down, so to speak, and have a few drinks, maybe uh, supper, and then go home. And then on the weekends, they had their bands come in, and uh, like a typical nightclub, but it was it was a fancy club. So, so on May first, uh, seventy-two, how many people would you figure were at the officers' club that night? Well, I don't have any idea. I, I never went in mm-hmm. uh, prior to the, the explosion, other than to answer to a, a call of uh, stolen property or something of that sort. Sure. Uh, typically on a weekend, though, would, it would be pretty crowded. Uh, but this bombing occurred on a Thursday night, so I really don't know how many would have been there, but probably less than a hundred. So how did you come to be there that night when that happened? I was working shift work, and my duty began at 3 p.m., and the, the shift was 3 to 11, and, and I reported to work at, at 3 p.m. and was given a briefing. And uh, two weeks prior to this bombing incident, we had been on 100% ID. Now, naturally, we had three generals in the building at that time, one three-star, one two-star, and then one one-star, one brigadier. And they operated within the building in their own little domain. Uh, and, of course, they were not checked. We, we knew them personally, but uh, everybody else was checked. And uh, no packages were allowed in unless they were inspected. It was a total lockdown. And uh, at 3 p.m. when I got my briefing, uh, back then we called it uh, guard mount, or it might be called a roll call these days. We were briefed that to go back to normal operation, uh, and we had a tour group coming in, and they started to line up at about 6 p.m. Uh, uh, this tour group was, if I remember correctly, they were headed to uh, Holland for a tulip festival that occurs there about you know during May and June, I believe, or somewhere in that area. And uh, they had three buses that were scheduled to be there to pick up, probably around 90 people. So. Inside the Rotunda area, we had about 90 people when the bombs went off. So, is this uh, were these Americans or was this uh, German tourists? They were mixed. Uh, you know, some of the servicemen had married Germans in, in earlier tours, so that some of these were uh, German descent, and some were American, and some were you know, American dependent wives and children, and they could have been school teachers for the American school, or or a Department of Defense personnel that, that wanted to go on the tour. And uh, most of the, the tourists uh, uh, there that night were female, uh, largely female and some children. Uh, you know, take that trip, probably a six or seven hour trip. And and when you were saying that that uh, it was on a hundred percent ID check, what two weeks earlier? What had prompted that? Was it bottom mine off activities? Was was there anything that you were aware of that prompted that? Yeah, there were there were marches in the area in Frankfurt. Uh, anti-American, and some of the marches had approximately 20,000 people in it, mostly college students, and uh, they would march through near the building. Uh, they would get within two two blocks, probably, of the building. And uh, since this was a major army headquarters, then, you know, the powers that be decided to 
to lock it down, and, and uh, uh, we had patrols in the area. This compound was probably three miles in circumference, and it housed, uh, you know, movie theaters, American High School, a large engineer building, Corps of Engineers, and some college buildings. Uh, University of Maryland had some contract buildings there, so it was it was a, a large compound. And so, uh, but at three o'clock that day, we were told to reduce patrols, and go back to normal operations. So, and because then, the perceived threat of the demonstrations was over, it sounds like that's correct. Okay. And the information I got that, that military intelligence said that the threat was over. Uh, I personally didn't believe that. <clears throat> I, I didn't feel comfortable. I thought it was premature. Uh, I've learned since then that military intelligence is. Uh, they're not very. They're not very good at what they do. <laughs> and, uh, you, you can see this on uh, what happened with Bush and, and all the gas in Iraq that wasn't there. And, uh, yeah. You can watch the old movies of Vietnam where they would drop these troops in a hot area after military intelligence said that it was a free area. You know, and they'd be get wiped out. You know, whole the entire units get wiped out based on the military intelligence recommendations. So, well, it sounds like in this case they're perception was based just on this localized threat of students and not really on the possible pending threat of the Red Army faction, the Bar Minoff gang. I had not, prior to the the bombing, I had not heard of Bader Meinhof as being part of any political process. My understanding was that they were in the, the uh, Stars and Stripes, which is the American newspaper, it's been around since World War II, I suppose, or, or before. Uh, they came up with a daily edition. They identified these people as a Bonnie and Clyde type people, you know, Bader and Meinhof. And uh, to my, my understanding, at that time, that they were bank robbers and, you know, the, like the American Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I had no prior knowledge of the political activity. Uh, I would assume that someone in the Army uh, chain of command knew that they were you know, political. Uh, and I had not seen any photographs of any of the terrorists prior to that. Now, the next morning, Stars and Stripes run all their pictures in the paper. And, uh, and I picked out two, a male and a female, uh, that were at the building at the time of the explosion. And uh, so then I got involved in the process with CID, German police, and the BKA. And well, let's... These people Let's we'll get to that in just a minute. So let's so you were at the building with uh, um, with the tourists, the group of uh, ninety or so tourists, and it's about seven o'clock, correct? That's right. Okay, so tell t- set me through what happened then. Well, the tourists were gathered in the rotunda. Now the rotunda area has a dome on top that's very similar to the U.S. Capitol, uh, and we had identified everyone, and they were wanting to bring their luggage into the rotunda. And I wouldn't allow that. I told my troops, keep all the luggage outside, uh, outside the building. And, and the, there's a large driveway there. And where the buses would pull up, and so they can, they can load it there. I don't want any luggage inside. So nothing penetrated the barrier except the people. And uh, just, I was at the very end of the rotunda, and this nice-looking woman walked up to me. And she had her hand in her purse. She had a shoulder strap purse. Had her hand in her purse, and she was fixing to cross into uh, the inside of the building. And I, I spoke a little German then, and I asked her for identification in German. And uh, she asked me 
and retired for the, the restaurant. And she still had her hand in her purse. Well, as a, as a casual matter, uh, wearing a, a 45 caliber pistol after a few hours gets kind of heavy on your hip. And I tended to have my right hand resting on my pistol, uh, just just resting. And, uh, and as she walked up, that's the way I was standing. And, uh, and then I asked her for identification. She, in turn, asked me in German for the bathroom. And I pointed it to her and told her, no further than that. And as soon as she got out of my peripheral vision, the bombs went off. And uh, there was one and another, and they were within nanoseconds of each other. Uh, wow. And then, I mean, steel, glass, and everything started flying. And uh, people were down and uh, screaming, and it was just, just terror. Now, and I couldn't the, see any of my people. You know, all my troops were down. The rotunda is in the main building, correct? It's at the entrance. Uh, you walk through a, a, a one set of doors. Uh, there, I think there were six doors to the front of the building, uh, they were probably 10 feet high and 3 feet wide for each door. It's solid glass, very heavy metal construction. And then you get through there, there's a foyer. And it was probably 20 feet deep and 60 feet wide. And then you get another set of doors. And uh, once you go through that second set, you're in the rotunda. And uh, that's where all the civilians were when the bombs went off. And uh, this person that you spoke to is later... The next morning, you realized it was probably Gudrun Enslin. That's correct. I identified her through just through the paper. Okay, so you're saying you didn't, you couldn't see or recognize any of your people, meaning um, because of debris and and uh, and and smoke and that, and and some of them just ducked down. Uh, I think I think they were shocking. Some of them were shocking and uh, just ineffective, you know, for, for a minute or two. Maybe maybe one guy in particular never. Never got to where he could uh, could work, uh, uh, but I ran out front because I I never got scared. I got mad, you know, that uh, something had happened. And in my mind, prior to that, I thought if we get hit, they're probably going to drive by and throw some grenades in this foyer. That's what I thought. It would sure. be the most they'd do. And uh, it turned out to be it was more like five pounds of C4 as opposed to hand grenade. Uh, I ran from the building and and I engaged the guy with an M16. <clears throat> he, he appeared to me that he was down the front of the steps. Uh, from your photograph, you'll see a, a center parade field looking thing. Yep. And he was uh, at the very closest point of that parade field driveway area, and I was on the steps. And I, I drew down on him with my 45. And uh, but he looked like an American, and and I thought he had long hair, but not not hippie long. It was shoulder length or less, under that. And he looked like an American, my GI. And uh, when I pointed my weapon at him, he never pointed back at me. He was holding it at port arms. Uh, and uh, I thought if I fire in this, he's going to spray everybody behind me. You know, so he was holding a weapon? M16. Oh, my God. Sure was. And he was in civilian clothes. Jeans and a red plaid checkered shirt, a red and white checkered shirt. <clears throat> and uh, he took off running to my right, and I thought better than shooting. Uh, he, just, he looked like an American. He didn't He didn't pose a threat other than the fact he was 
not supposed to be there with an M6P. But he's never offered to engage me. And I thought, if I fire and miss, he's going to spray all these people standing behind because he would have fired into the building. If he got me, that had been something that he would have, some bullets would have gone inside that building. Wow. So I, I decided not to fire. I got a little criticism from that, but, but I did the right thing because uh, it would have been a good pistol shot at 80 to 100 feet. Uh, you know, I, I'm a good pistol shot. I was then a scored expert, but that's not the point. <laughs> you know, it, I made that decision right then not to shoot, and uh, he got away, and we don't know who he was for sure. At least I don't. So, and I don't know of any Americans that were involved with these people. So did, did he run away immediately or what was how did he when, when I, yeah when i when i drew down on him he never tried to he never pointed at me he just stood there like he was in shock or like you got me kind of deal and then he just spun to his left and took off running you know the area that he was running to <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> as you face the front of the building to the left at the very left end of that building was a door that mi used and i thought he's an mi covert guy he's 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 covert and you know and he's mi and because he ran back in that direction and uh, i explained that to the, the general's board the reason i didn't thought uh, didn't fire because he offered no aggression to me and he ran back to where mi was located hmm. and uh, they told me well mi there was nobody in mi doing that and they weren't authorized to do that anyway well I knew for a fact, though, that they had MI had covert people in those marches two weeks prior, because I knew a couple of them, and they were they would march in there and uh, try to pick up, you know, information. So I knew that was a lie right off the bat that they did have covert people, and they were working around these marches. Wow. So so the guy runs off, and then what do you do next? Well, I went back in the building, and. Uh, well, as I was going back in, now keep in mind the time frame on this is probably like a minute. Sure. A minute and a half at the most. And I had one of my, my radio guy, was later named Ted Boyd. And out of five men, he was the only one that was up and around, like heading good fence. And I told Ted to get on the radio. No, we had a van parked out there that had a radio in it. And uh, I told him to get on the radio. Send me all the EMPs you can get. Send me all the ambulances you can get. Call German police. Call CID and get them here now. And he went and made that radio call. And then someone told me that they done that they heard an explosion behind the building. And I thought, well, that's got to be the, the officers' club. And so I ran through the building, and uh, all the doors were locked, and we didn't have keys to those doors for some reason. And uh, so I took a nightstick that I had and broke out the glass at this door, and that was a challenge. I, I couldn't kick it out. I, could, I just kept hitting it until I finally got it to break, and I could get through the door. And uh, as I actually got outside, I could see Colonel Bloomquist laying there. Uh, he was probably 100 feet away, and uh, I couldn't see if he was dead or alive at that point until I got up on him. And then I saw all the blood and the, the massive injury he had, and I thought, there's no way he can be alive, absolutely no way. And then I walked inside. The, the officer's club now had a, uh, a portico, a small portico to the front of it. And uh, on either side, or on both sides, there was an entry door. And all that had been destroyed. Uh, but I walked 
just peeked my head inside that, and I, I didn't see anybody inside. And I could tell that if there was damage inside, it wasn't as bad as what was uh, at the Farman building. So my, uh, a car came by that had uh, four guys in it, GIs, off-duty GIs, and they uh, they wanted to take the colonel to the hospital until he's dead. You might leave him alone, just leave him, leave him there. And uh, they said, no, we got we got to try, we got to try. So I said, we'll take him on. And uh, I went back into the building, and back back to the apartment building. And there was a bird colonel that came in, and he uh, was in uniform. And he was a brigade commander, I believe. Uh, I didn't know him. He, he was in an outlying area. And he was moving a 1,000 troops through Frankfurt to a training area for exercise somewhere, some other part of Germany. And he said, I've got a 1,000 men out here. What do you want me to do with them? And I was shocked because I was just a basic buck sergeant here. I'm talking to a colonel. And uh, I and just, just put them around this compound, elbow to elbow, fixed bayonet. Nobody in, nobody out till we get this thing, you know, under control. And uh, that's what he did. And uh, within a few minutes, ambulances started showing up. And uh, so every, every cop in Germany, I believe, was there. So with um, Lieutenant Colonel Br- uh, Bloomquist, you arrived at him, and he was clearly, he was dead at the yes, time. Yes, I, I was the first one there. And, and tell, was, tell me about his injuries, You because it's been reported that he was hit by glass from the uh from the the one of the windows blowing out but you're saying that definitely was not the case no and i'm not saying he did not have glass fragments glass fragments in his body he may well have but what i saw was not caused by glass it was not a clean cut this was caused by a projectile or shrapnel at least the size of a baseball that hit him i would i would say probably right under his chin down to his clavicle and blew all that out on the right side to include part of his ear. And it was just, it's like he took a saw and cut all that out. Uh, And the carotid and all that was exposed. And he he totally bled out. Uh, Do you think it was shrapnel from the bomb, or or it was... Well, from that building, said that portico uh, was metal. And uh, so there was fragments from that, and possibly some fragments from the bomb, depending on how they packed it. They may have packed it with some shrapnel, you know, pieces of metal to it. I don't know. Where do you think the bomb was placed? It was right at the front, right in front of the portico. The portico was solid. It, it wasn't uh, like an overhang of, of a building. It was solid. Uh, uh, wood and metal front, and then doors on both sides, glass doors on both sides. So uh, I would that would have probably presented some shrapnel by itself. You know. And do you think it was placed there because there wasn't, security around there well typically it, it had no more security than the, than the uh, theater or the schools or anyone else it, it, it was just a patrol area but there was no one there you know to even see who came in or out uh, it was of lesser concern i suppose security wise than than the the building the farming building but there was no np there now I, I think after that they did put somebody out there you know, for 12 hours a day or whatever. Yeah. Which was really like closing the gate, you know, after the horse got out. But, uh, yeah. But it, it was a no higher value target than, than the theater or any, or any any other building, you know, on that compound. Okay, so um, so you had talked with this uh, this bird colonel and suggested they 
secure the entire area with his men, um, and that's when the ambulance started arriving. Yeah. Uh, the German ambulances pulled up, American ambulances pulled up. Uh, we probably had a company of NPs there within 30 minutes, and German police out to Gazoo. There was, there was nothing there but law enforcement. And then uh, some of the military commanders heard of it. They brought their people in to make sure that all the classified information was there and uh, it, it make sure there wasn't any. Some people stayed late in that building, uh, to, you know, to check on their people. All the phone systems got knocked out. Uh, that building is seven floors high. And on the very top floor, they had a large switchboard there that probably worked a lot of the military phones uh, throughout the area. And it was manned by eight or ten people 24 hours a day. And uh, that got knocked out. And uh, I made a trip up there to check on them, and there was nobody there. They, How do you they, think it got knocked out? The I don't know, uh, unless it was just the jarring effect. Uh, I know our phones. I had two phones there that we used, and they didn't work. Hmm. But every, it must have been the jarring action of that bomb or bombs that, that knocked something loose somewhere. That and and and, and the, the the operators, they got out of the building. Uh, even seven floors up, they felt it and scared them enough they left. And uh, there was a lot of heat on them after it was over with. You know, they were supposed to stay there, stay there until they died because nobody had phone contact. Yeah, so they left. You know, phones are out. So, were these uh, civilian? Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were American civilian. Yeah, uh, Department of Defense personnel. Uh, working for the DOD. Or, that could have been Department of the Army people, civilian. But, uh, but they, they, they scooted. That bomb was so powerful, I guess it's seven floors up. They, they, they didn't know what was going on, and they got scared, and they took off. Now, were there a lot of other um, people injured? I know of one other. Now, there, well, there were 90 people, to some degree, injured. Everybody there got full time. I didn't get hit with anything. And uh, none of my men got hit, but the civilians were bleeding. And of course, a lot of terror. And yeah. uh, there was one other guy. I took a little criticism for this, but I made the right call, I think. Still think I made the right call. Uh, but a staff sergeant came running through the halls, tall, lanky staff sergeant. And I had seen him, but I didn't know his name. And he said, I need some help getting a guy off the fourth floor. And he said he was standing at, at a window with his palm turned outward, you know, leaning into the window, looking outside, and that blast knocked that window pane out, and it hit him uh, in his forearms, on the inside of his forearms, and he said he's about, he's bleeding to death. And uh, I had a medical patch, and uh, so did this Ted Board that was with me, my radio man, and we both gave him our patches, and I said, look, I can't spare anybody, I don't have anybody to give you. Uh, put that patch on there, tight as tight as you can, take your belt, take his belt, put tourniquets around his arms above the elbow, and get him down here, and we'll get him in the ambulance, walk him out. And he got mad at me. He said, i got to have help. I said, I don't have anybody to give you. And uh, we were <clears throat> uh, we were still concerned about uh, secondary bombs in the building. And I told the guy, I said, we've got to look for secondary stuff. And because there were, there were ashtray cans in there, uh, waste matter cans that someone could have slipped something in, you know, to go off when the cops got there or when the ambulance people got there. So we don't, we've got to look for secondary. Get him down here on your own power. And uh, he was trained in basic training on how to carry somebody. 
and uh, you tie a tourniquet on, it's only like four minutes or three-minute walk, you know, to where he was talking about. Just that, just load him up, fire him and carry him down here. And uh, they had a, a semi-elevator. They called it Paternoster. It was similar to an elevator. I guess that guy lived, but uh, I took a little criticism for not giving him So they, they put him in one of the Paternoster elevators and brought him down. Yeah. yeah. That must have been scary because those are... That's the constantly revolving right. elevator, yeah. and you got to kind of time your entrance That's into exactly them. Exactly right. You so, firemen carrying somebody into that would have been. But everybody in that building used them daily, so they were used to it. Yeah. And uh, now, uh, people that came in that, you know, their first day there, they panicked, you know, when to get on, when to get off. And uh, I've ridden that thing all the way from top to bottom before, before I learned how to get off of it. And, uh, yeah, it, it zoops, zoops over the top and goes back down, right? Yeah, and it takes you all the way to the basement again. Yeah. And, and there's no door on it. You just got to step off and step on. Uh, and uh, some days it seemed to run a little faster than other days. But, uh, so he had the pattern monster availability. The guy didn't die at any rate. I don't know whether he lost his arms or not. I never heard anything about it. I took a little criticism for not giving him Ted Boyd. But when I explained to him, we were still looking for secondary explosions with all the luggage that was out there, and, and we had already had insulin come through. And uh, so uh, she could have put something, somebody, there might have been 10 terrorists there, we don't know. Yeah. They all might have had something to put in trash cans, you know, time to go off later, but we never found anything. But that was the same time that Ted and I were sweeping through time to time secondaries if there were any. And uh, so that that was a short-lived criticism. It was just, uh, if I had to do it again, I think I'd done what I did. Sure. But uh, that was one of those, make a decision right now, that you don't have time to think, and just react to what you're doing, and that's what happened. So the um, so at this point, the ambulances have started to um, pack people up, and, and at what point did you start to decide, you know, maybe there isn't another bomb, and, and how did that work? How long were you there working, well, securing the place? The, the, ambulance, the ambulance showed up, the German police showed up, the uh, the main MP company in Frankfurt, and we were we were a small detachment. Uh, the main body of the MP showed up, but this time some ranking officers came up. They gathered all of us together, all the MPs around here. I think there were five of us, and uh, they put us in an ambulance. I kept telling them, I don't need, I'm not hurt. None of us were bleeding. We're not hurt, and they, but you're going to go to the hospital, and you're going to get checked out. So we did, and. Uh, had to get naked for them, <laughs> and uh, they checked every piece of us because they said there could be a piece of glass or metal that you don't feel. And when they looked us over, and they sent us back down to the building, and uh, my CEO came along and told us all to go to the house. They said, you, you know, you've had a hard day just going home. And uh, so we did, and that was what all happened after that, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, I didn't see many... Uh, I didn't see hardly any of them get into an ambulance because they moved us out pretty quick to uh, to get checked out. So, um, are at, at a certain point, when did you start piecing this together and and understanding that this was this left wing terrorist and connected the bottom line off? Was it reading Stars well, and Stripes the next know, day? Were people talking about it? I thought just from the news press at the time. I thought this, these are some kind of Palestinian terrorists or something. Because I, I was still believing 
that the Bader Meinhof was a Bonnie and Clyde outfit, yeah. based on what I'd heard and read in the Stars and Stripes. That's how the Stars and Stripes categorized them. They didn't categorize them as a political action group. Uh, so the next morning, when the Stars and Stripes came out, I went back to my unit, and I had a copy of that. And I said, I know two of these people. You know, I saw one and talked to one. So and, uh, let's go back a bit. So you, you picked up a copy that morning, the next morning of Stars and Stripes. Yeah, and then what, what did it what did it show? There were, uh, I think you've got it on your website, there's a picture of about 20 of them. So it was the, the famous poster that, right. um, exactly. that that's yeah. on the website and that, right. that is, uh, has about 20 of the members, yeah. a bunch of women and a bunch of men on it. That's correct. Uh, I recognize the insulin. Now, the photograph of insulin is a good photograph. But that day, she was decked out, you know, like she was going to church that day. Uh, and, she, and when she gets cleaned up, she's a very pretty woman. There was. Uh, she caught my eye, and, and then she was headed to an area that she couldn't go. When you're saying decked out for church, kind of describe what clothing she was wearing. Oh, she had a business suit, a two-piece business suit, if I remember. It was a, kind of a pinstripe gray, uh, uh, you know, jacket and skirt, uh, long boots. Uh, had her hair fixed nicely, long dangling earrings, you know, a lot of good makeup. Uh she just looked really, really pretty. Uh, sure. Pretty. And, uh, and I thought, well, I've not seen you before, but you can't go where you're going. And, and that's when I asked her for her office. And, uh, and she asked me for the vodka closet. And, uh, and I told her where it was, and I told her no no further than that. And uh, my intention was to give her a minute or two, and then I would walk up to the, near the door so I could make sure she didn't go any deeper into the building. In, uh, in retrospect, I, do you think she was looking to place another bomb, looking to kill somebody? What do you think her intentions were in retrospect? Well, I have information, post-information, what she was going to do. Yeah. I spoke with the BKA uh, three or four months later, and I described that to them. And they said her her job that day was to kill you because you were the ranking guy. They wanted maximum confusion. And, uh, but I think that's possibly true because she had her hand in her purse. And I think by me having my hand on my pistol that she thought, cause you know, she's paranoid. I'm not, you know, yeah. and, and under her paranoia, she might've thought I had the drop on her. That if she pulled her weapon, I'd, I'd take her out. I, that's what I think she might've thought. But I also believe that she probably had the, uh, uh, the little clicker deal or whatever she used, remote control, to detonate those bombs at the front of the building. So, so you think it was a remotely detonated bomb, not a timer thing? Well, I think so. It could have been. Because yeah. she had hand in her purse. And when I was talking to her, she had line of sight of where the bombs were. Oh, really? And, uh, so she could have, you know, she may have threw her purse, uh, remotely set it off. Because it was just, oh, just as soon as we talked, and she got up and she went to my right, we were standing face on, and she went to my right and got out of my peripheral vision. The bombs went off. So, uh, so you, so when you saw that picture in the paper the next day, you start, you realized immediately, wow, because yeah. there she is on the yeah. top row. I know this woman. I know this woman, and I saw this guy there. So the, the, the guy you saw was Klaus Junschka. Junschka, that's correct. Tell, and, tell me uh, about, and he was the gentleman, the gentleman. He was the guy with the M16. No, he was not. He was separate. Okay, so 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 what? Um, where did you see him at, and and how did you 
encounter him? Okay, I was there just about 10 minutes or less, probably probably more like six minutes before the bombs went off. I was in an office there in the, in the foyer. They had an MP desk there. It was glassed in, and there was a, a desk to the uh, right-hand side of the, the desk there that I used as, a, as an office. And I had been sitting there, and one of my guys came up to me and said, I need to talk to you about a personal matter. So I stepped out with him. He headed toward the rotunda. I happened to look back to the front entrance, and I saw the scruffy-looking guy that didn't didn't look he didn't look like he belonged. And we locked eyes for a second or two, maybe a little longer than that. I looked him over, looked me over. I didn't speak. He didn't speak. But I, I was just kind of thinking, what what's he doing here? He looks like a hobo or something. And uh, he turned around, and walked out, and I said, well. You know, it's open to the public. I guess he can come in and look this far if that's what he wants to do. And then I thought, well, he might be a bus driver, too. It's possible because his buses were starting to line up. And uh, then I followed my guy back to the rotunda, and I was talking to him when insulin came up. And uh, that's how I met met, uh, Yensky. That's who I was staring at there momentarily. Did you you sense that they were together at all? No, not at all. So, so you, so, so you definitely recognized him as well. He, he, he looked like his photograph. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Both of them did. Except she was nicer dressed that day with makeup and her hair fixed. Uh, he looked like he did in the picture, just, just like he took it the same day. Needed to shave. You know, he probably had a week's growth of shave on him. He was a little bit overweight. Uh, he, he just his, his clothing just didn't look uh, professional. He had on uh, like black pants and a blue shirt or something, and you know shirt tail trying to come out, and he just didn't look right. <clears throat> you know, he looked he looked seedy. And you didn't recognize any the 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 guy with the gun at all? You or the no. M16? You didn't see no, him he's anywhere. Still, he's still a mystery. Uh, I have no idea who he who he was. He he was he looked like an American. Despite like what the guy. what the police said, is it possible he was military intelligence, and they're just not admitting it? Well, I think military intelligence lied to the generals, what I think happened. I think MI was trying to get the glory of stopping this gang. I think they probably had a tip and uh, that something was going to happen. And it may have been greater, you know, what might have been greater than what they thought. But I think somebody was trying to get some glory there, and it went all, went all bad on them. Because the reason, the reason I ask about that is because I have never, ever ever heard of anybody in the bottom line F group having an M16. They um, definitely used Kalashnikovs and um, almost exclusively used them and also some Heckler and Koch um, machine guns and some others, but I've never actually heard of them using an M16, which, and the fact that you identified him as looking kind of American, it sounds it sounds likely that there was a reason this guy was out there and maybe they didn't, it sounds like, like you're saying, they didn't want to admit it. It just seems um, odd. Um, and also I've never actually heard of them sticking around, like, as you're suggesting, with with um, firepower mm-hmm. to kill people like that or, or not yeah, do it. Yeah, it, it seems yeah. more likely, as you're suggesting, it might have been Americans and then they're covering it up later, possibly. Well, I, I've always felt that... Uh, now- let me draw you a parallel. You've got, in that MI detachment down there, they probably had a white colonel, maybe even a colonel running it. And then below him is all his sergeants and things. Uh, 
I, I don't know much about MI, how they work, but I do know I did have a couple of friends there from other assignments uh, that, that were working in MI there in that particular detachment, and one, one in particular was covert, and he and someone else were actually in those marches, so I knew they had covert people at core level, fifth core level, uh, that were involved in things in the community. And, and that was in the back of my head. When I went outside, I thought, this is a, this is a dead gum MI guy. That's why yeah. I didn't shoot him, because he didn't, he didn't point at me. If he had pointed at me, I'd have shot him or shot at him. And uh, I believe I'd have hit him dead center. Uh, but uh, he didn't offer any aggression, and I didn't give him any. And he ran back where the MI people were. Yeah. You know, if he had jumped in a car real quick, I'd have probably start shooting. Uh, but because I know that he wasn't in my, he's 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 with them. Uh, I did hear from uh, my superiors that some American soldiers were helping these people. I never got any information other than that. Uh, there was no one ever convicted of it, arrested for it, or anything that I know of. But there was there was likelihood that they had some help. I've heard uh, rumors of that in one way or another, but I've never heard anything. And more importantly, I've never heard anything from the terrorist end that they yeah. particularly did that. And, of course, later on in the 80s, they pointedly, um, like there was an incident where they lured a, a, a gentleman named, Ed, I think, Pimental, Edward Pimental, they they murdered him for his ID card so they could go onto the base the next day and kill more people, and they yeah. just they they weren't particularly connected, as my understanding. But yeah. there was always rumors, and a lot of I think those rumors were based around how did they get on these bases, um, and in reality, they're they got on bases by subterfuge. So I, I'm not I, I haven't heard anything that would actually support that. I suppose it's possible, but I haven't heard anything supported it, and I haven't heard anything from the terrorist side to support it. So I, I, I don't know, but I, I don't don't think that it happened based on what I've heard there. But there's a lot about the story that hasn't come out and will never come out, so it's hard to actually know. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Officers Club did not have a sign that said Officers Club on it. Uh, they might, I think it was Terrorist Club, I believe. They had a sign yep. that it said Terrorist Club. That doesn't say officer club. It doesn't say anything. So somebody had to tell them, or somehow they gleaned the information that, that was an officer club. Uh, they may have. And see, that compound was open to the public. There were Germans walking all around uh, that compound day and night with their dogs and playing ball in these big fields they had there. Uh, and it was well maintained. It was real pretty. Uh, so I guess you know they could say, "What's that, what's that building for?" And, and so that's the officer's club over there. Oh, okay. You know, so that they wouldn't have had to use subterfuge to get that information. Just um, anybody walking by would have told them it was officer's club. But, so uh, let's talk about the, um, so you've identified these people. Uh, you you went and talked to your superiors and said, hey, I recognize these people. How did that play yeah, I out? Went, I went to uh, my platoon sergeant the next morning after I read the paper. And I told him I recognized two of these people. And uh, then I drove to the CID office in Frankfurt, which was a regional office, and I gave them a lengthy statement. And uh, I had already applied for the CID program. And, uh, and and CID is Criminal Investigation Division, right? Right. right. Yeah. What and, what is uh, that? That is the that's like the the detective squad. It's it's the 
military equivalent of the FBI. Okay. They work only felonies, and uh, they don't work on misdemeanor stuff. It's just only felonies. And, and this would be something they'd be involved with heavily. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, because it's an attack against U.S. US military. They, they work the case in, in uh, conjunction with the German police because it happened on their soil. Uh, none of those buildings over there belong to the U.S. They're renting or leased yeah. a dollar a year, whatever it is. It's not much. <clears throat> so the German police have a little connector there as far as investigating crimes. Uh, they're generally invited to investigate rather than just coming in on their own. But but they were involved in it. And uh, the BKA, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, the Bundes criminal law. They're sort of like the FBI of Germany. Yeah, they were specially organized, I think, to fight this group. Well, uh, they, they, they existed prior to this, but it was this group and the challenge of this group that uh-huh. persuaded... At the at the time, the German German state was very decentralized, and this was a this was a product of the end of the war. Them not wanting to allow Germany to kind of reform into another Nazi Germany, so they made it very decentralized, and they didn't have a real strong national police force. And the BKA was kind of in charge of the frontier and the borders. And with the challenge of the Bottom Einhof Group, they realized if we're going to catch these people, we need to coordinate our efforts better and we need to empower the bka to be able to do this so the bk built up rapidly in response to the bottom Meinhof group and it was going on all through like late 71 and early 72 and so it it got built up in response to them but it yeah. existed beforehand but it became sort of like the equivalent of the fbi entirely because of the bottom Meinhof group well i know they had a lot of power and uh, a lot of respect from the police they were uh, they could show their credentials, and they got, I mean, kid glove treatment wherever they went. Sure. Uh, and I, you know, I went, actually, I got I got involved with them pretty heavily there uh, around uh, late 72 all the way through 74. Uh, kind of a friendship with one of them. And uh, he told me told me a lot uh, that I didn't know. Uh, he's, in fact, he's the one told me that her job that day was, was shooting me. Now, in your email last night, uh, we were talking about Klaus Jensky. Yeah. Uh, now, you told me something, and I kind of had an epiphany after reading that. The reason he wasn't prosecuted, I see now, is that he rolled over, and he was giving them information. Had to be, because he was not prosecuted. And I told them that he, he was there, he put the bombs there. Because when I talked to him, he was within five feet of where it went off. It had to be him. And when I kept asking them about it, even years later, it's all he he wasn't involved in it. And I thought that's a bunch of crap because I saw it, you know. And uh, so now I, I, this epiphany hit me last night. Heck, he was snitching for him. Had to well, be. here's here's the story with 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 Yushka. He was um, he was a he was a member of uh, a group called the Socialist Patients Collective, which was which was this group that was around a, a professor at the University of Heidelberg named Wolfgang Uber. And this guy believed, this is something that, honestly, you think can only come out of the 1960s. He believed that he was a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and he believed that mental illness was a, was a product of capitalism. It wasn't a biological thing. It was a natural outgrowth of capitalism. And this is a very general way of describing what he believed, but that's what he believed. And the cure was a socialist state. And, and, and 
conducting revolutionary acts towards socialism would help cure them of this capitalist-inspired mental illness. So essentially, he had a bunch of students and followers that were mentally ill of one form or another, and their cure was communism, was socialism. Seems, honestly, in some ways, it almost seems like a joke. It seems so crazy. Um, But they believe that, and they formed a group called the Socialist Patients Collective. They collectivized, like like a lot of these groups did. And he was one of the... Later, after all the group members were captured a couple weeks after the bombing in May, um, a second like group called the Second Generation of the Red Army Faction was formed. And, and the basis of that group was former members of the SPK, the Socialist Patients Collective. But Yushka had joined earlier. And so he was a member of this and he was, um, he had participated in a bank robbery in Kaiserlautern in, uh, 71. And there was a, a, a policeman that got killed in this robbery, um, named Herbert Schoner. And this was the first real victim of the Bader Meinhof group, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that somebody had died because prior to that they were robbing banks and it was exciting to young people outside but people weren't dying and at this point somebody was dying they killed this cop and that's what he was convicted of and he did get a life sentence and he was convicted for that as to why he wasn't charged in your incident I don't know, but I do know that separately he was all he was tried separately and given a conviction for a different crime. Now, what happened to him was in uh, in while he was in prison throughout the eighties, and I'm not sure exactly when, but but I described that incident where the gentleman where they went on that base and they and they and they lured that one in a club the night before and they lured that Edward Pimental and murdered him for his ID card. He pointedly condemned that um, in prison. He publicly condemned it. He said, this is ridiculous. And he was roundly criticized by the other terrorists, you know, both on the inside and outside for for not supporting the work. And that's when he basically broke with the group and he condemned it and said, you know, this is ridiculous. And this was a contributing factor in, in his pardon. The, a lot of these former terrorists were pardoned and if they got out early, it was because they broke with their past, and he was one of those that broke with the past. So I'm not I'm not sure when he was doing that, and if he wasn't quietly supporting ahead of time. But I do know that separate from from this particular incident in uh, in Frankfurt, he 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 was convicted and given a life sentence, which was a very harsh sentence um, for German, even though life means. 20 years maximum um he was he was given that for a separate crime so anyway so that's the background with uh with yunchka so it's possible he was doing that it's also possible that that they picked and choose their battles and they were thinking in the the crimes when they were going after enslin they really wanted to focus on the four major defendants of those crimes um the four or five major defendants in the stamheim trial and they wanted to put Yunchka and others, and they didn't want to lump them into that, so they chose not to prosecute him for that. It's possible. I don't know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned insulin. Uh, I remember in some of the interviews, when I talked to the BKA, they were in my office, and it was most of the day we would talk about this over and over and over. And they, they hammered in on me, tell me as much as you can tell me about insulin, how she looked, and 
what was my perception of her. And I, I told them how she was dressed that day, like I told you. And uh, and they said, do you think she was college educated? And I thought, well, based on her appearance and the way she handled <laughs> herself, I'd say yes. Uh, comparing her against Americans, <laughs> you know. That's amazing. You you encountered her for all this time, and you, yeah. you had to talk with them for days right. about this very and brief I told her, I thought I thought that she uh, was poised the way she walked. Uh, she was the kind that could put a book on her head and walk in a crowd, and uh, you know her voice was good, and her looks were good, and her demeanor, and all this. And, and so they were trying to draw a picture based on a thirty-second to forty-five-second viewing, or you know, no more than a minute. Uh, but she had the the, uh, the flair to be about anything she wanted to be, I suppose. But as far you know, you know, I could only compare her against American women and more. And I thought, well, she's better this way and better that way. Because uh, I hadn't, I'd only been in country like six months. It was on my first tour. You know, I spent two tours there. But that was my first tour, so I didn't really have a lot of experience identifying German women. You know, I could only compare them against American women. So. Well, to, to give you a brief bit of... Um a background kind of kind of establishing what you had established earlier was you're right in the American press what little coverage they had and they talked about it in time and Newsweek before the bombings of of May of 72 it was entirely referred to as this Bonnie and Clyde situation because and that was a product of the fact that this journalist Ulrika Meinhof had helped Andreas Bader escape from custody and that that act gave rise to this name, Bader Meinhof. And, and this was, in a sense, the, the best thing that ever happened to this group, in, in a sense, because it put names to this group. So people talked about Bader Meinhof, and they mentally imagined, oh, it's, it's this Bader and Meinhof, this, this man and woman leading this band of, um, Bonnie and Clyde type people robbing banks. The irony was, is Ulrika Meinhof was not the leader of this group. Gudrun Enslin was the leader with Andreas Bader. Right. And they, if there was such a leader, they would call themselves, you know, socialist and we make decisions together. But they were, she was definitely leader of this group along with Bader. And, um, but the public just pictured Bader and Meinhof. They assumed it was them. And because early on they were just robbing a bunch of banks and other stuff, outwardly people would equate them romantically with Bonnie and Clyde. And of course, Bonnie and Clyde was something that a lot of people were thinking about this time. It was only like four or five years earlier, the movie with Warren Beatty had come out and there was a very romantic thought of Bonnie and Clyde in people's minds. So they connected that. And to the American, I don't know about the American um, military intelligence, but certainly the American press and Stars and Stripes, that's kind of all they thought of it as. They didn't, they yeah. weren't really listening to them when they would put out communiques about how we want to f- bring the war home to America in Germany and, and you know, bring about global revolution and stuff. They just were thinking of in terms of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, the BKA, on the other hand, they knew exactly what was going on, and they knew, and they were very worried what might happen, that they were going to start putting their war into action and start bombing stuff. So when they were grilling you, they were going, they were probably, amongst other things, they were going, my God, 
the leadership of this group is directly participating in these activities. That's kind of rare. In a lot of these terrorist groups, you have leaders that send minions out to do it. But this is a group that the leadership actively participated in all of these um, terrorist acts. I mean, it was really kind of putting their money where their mouth was. So anyway, so I digress, but that was that's kind of the background of why the Americans were focused on this kind of Bonnie and Clyde kind of thought, but the BKA was probably a heck of a lot more knowledgeable about the internal workings of the group. And at this time, they did have um, a couple of uh, informants within the group that were um, telling them generalized things about what was going on. So they knew it wasn't Minoff. They knew the, the importance of Gudrun Enslin. Yeah. Cool. Well, there was a, another incident, or another deal. Uh, I guess about two weeks after the, the May bombing, uh, I was approached to... Actually, I wasn't told. I strongly suggested that I submit to a video interview for a German TV station. Really? Yeah. So I did that. It was about, uh, it was like our 2020. Uh, 2020, I think, might have just been online then. Or well, 60 Minutes was on at the time. Okay. And uh, that was about a 10 or 15 minute segment that I was on German TV, and I didn't speak German well enough at that time to, to catch all they were saying. I could just see myself on TV. I didn't want to do it because they filmed me in my car driving to work. You know, I re- Reenacted what happened, and uh, I didn't like my car being on TV anyway. Cause, but I, I ended up selling that car real quick. Yeah. And, uh, so I was on German TV for a while. They and, absolutely uh, would hold people accountable for their actions. So you being on TV before all these people were caught was a pretty dangerous act. Were you thinking that at the time? Yeah, yeah I was. That's why I sold my car, and I've got another one. Uh, I got I got a little paranoid there because I was in country for another two and a half years, and at that time, to my knowledge, I was the only surviving witness that could ID somebody. That may not have been correct, but I felt that I might have been. Uh, and I got to where I would tape my my hood, tape my doors when I got out. Uh, Scotch tape, just a little little bit of tape to see if they'd been opened or tampered with, and I did that for at least that tour till seventy. That's when I rotated out, because I didn't know, and I had uh, went to several lineups at German prisons. Uh, I did insulin. Tell, tell me about that. So, first off, you when you were um, were you relieved when you heard a month later that she had been captured? I didn't know when she got captured. Uh, do you remember what year it was? Yeah, this she was captured. Almost the entire leadership of this group was captured within. Five weeks of the of the bombing in in uh, in Frankfurt. No, uh, I, I don't know when she was captured. Uh, I probably read it in the news, but I, did, I didn't. I don't remember that. I think it was. Uh, I'm, I I can't remember the exact date, but she was captured probably probably about one month after she she was captured a, after the Frankfurt captures of um, of uh, Bader, okay. Raspa, and Mines. Well, I had a little bit. There was Bader getting captured. Tell, tell and, me about uh, that. Inadvertently, uh, uh, several weeks after the bombing, there, well, actually days after the bombing, we got we started getting printouts of license plates known to be used by the terrorists. And uh, and I had one in my vehicle. And I had to make a run somewhere one day, and I had this Ted Boyd again driving. And uh, he was one of my favorite guys. And, 
and we were driving through Frankfurt, and we stopped at a red light, and there was Alfa, Alfa Romeo in front of us. And I, I looked at the, the hot sheet and looked at that plate, and it matched. And uh, I got out to approach the car, and he took off, run the light. And we got after him, and the only thing we had to drive was a Datgum Ford van. And uh, we stayed with him. He went up on sidewalks, we went up on sidewalks. Uh, Ted didn't drive as hard as I would have driven, but we stayed stayed up with him pretty good. And we busted lights, and then, uh, you know, we, we had a blue light, but we didn't have a siren. And I was on the radio trying to get through, but the buildings were so tall that my radio wouldn't bounce off the buildings. And I was trying to get German police to intercept us, and I couldn't even get through the MP station. And uh, finally, he turned left, and Ted hesitated a little bit on his turn, and we lost him. Absolutely, he just he just out of thin air he was gone it was in a residential area and uh, we went on back and I made a report of it and uh, sent it to the we had an interpreter uh, that was uh, uh, hooked in with the German police and I had him give them a call and tell them the spotting and where it ended up and the next morning I got up and bam they'd caught him <laughs> and it wow. shot him in the butt going over a fence and uh, I thought well that, that that wasn't quite how it how it happened if you're talking about Botter, yeah, he was. Uh, they they had intel, and it may have been from from what had happened to you that that they were using this uh, garage um, in Frankfurt, very close to where your base was, and they and they were out. But the police secretly went into this garage, and they found tons of explosives, and I think. Um, possibly like ammonia nitrate fertilizer explosives they were building. And they, they systematically replaced all the explosives with inert stuff. Oh, okay. And then they waited for these terrorists to show back up, at which point they ended up in a shootout with them, and mm-hmm. Botter got shot in the leg, and um, and him and the others were all, were all captured in a big, I mean, honestly, an enormous shootout that was all over live TV and stuff. And... Um, and and the police had kind of knew there was going to be a shootout going on, so they had kind of systematically replaced like uh, they had set up sandbags in the area and everything else. One thing I can I cannot recommend highly enough. Whereabouts do you live? I live in Canton, Texas. It's fifty miles east of Dallas. Okay, so um, it's possible in Dallas. There's a there's a honestly a really pretty amazing movie that was that came out in Germany about a year ago and it was nominated for the Oscar last year, which it lost called the Bader Meinhof complex. And, um, it, it, it's being released in America next month or this month actually. And, um, and it'll probably be in Dallas. I'd encourage you to see it because it'll probably bring up memories that uh-huh. the time frame of what you were talking about, um, they, they only do a little bit about these bombings and other stuff, um, but it really is quite extraordinary the level of detail they get on this. It's not, it's not like a pro-terrorist thing. It's it just very matter-of-fact, um, but it's pretty extraordinary the level of detail they get, and they, they deal with the capture of Bader pretty um, succinctly, and you can see that, and I imagine you'll see some of the stuff in there, and you'll go, oh, my God, they got that exactly wrong, um, yeah. because... Yeah. Some of the bombings they clearly just kind of showed in rapid succession, and and I could tell, like um, like when they're driving on the Camel Barracks in in um, in Heidelberg, it doesn't even look like Camel Barracks. It doesn't even remotely look like it. But you know, yeah. whatever. So anyway, well, so so um, 
So the next day they captured him and you had heard about that. So were you not, were you following it pretty closely at this point in the news when these people were captured? Well, or was I, it just I, a peripheral thing? The only news we got was either on AFN, which didn't give a lot of news. Uh, just Star and Stripes basically at that time. Yep. Now, now, months later now, when I was talking to BKA quite a bit, I told them about this Chase and Bader, or this car one day, and that, that, uh, that the capture of Bader was in that area. And he said, yes, we saw you. <laughs> so evidently, they had a remote control, or he did, to, to open the garage door to get in and hide that car before oh. we, we could spot him. Uh, but I was thoroughly intending to have a shootout that day with somebody uh you know i'm prepared to and uh but we lost him and that, that's the only thing i can explain is that he went to, had a garage door open and opened it up before we got there and it closed before we got there now i don't i don't really know like rules of engagement but as an mp would you have what would have been the blowback of you engaging in a shootout uh, on frankfurt street pardon a medal yeah, okay, so that wouldn't have been treated poorly at all. They would have... No, uh... no under, under the uh, SOFA agreement, you know, Status Forces agreement, uh, we could we could detain Germans, but we couldn't prosecute them. And we did that frequently. If we caught a German acting out, we'd, we'd hold him and call the German police. Huh. And we could use whatever forces necessary to hold him. So had, had uh, they presented in an aggressive stance, we could, we could stay with them. And uh, that was on the sofa agreement. So, you know, challenging, uh, shooting a German would not be illegal per se. So let's talk about some of these lineups that you participated in. Tell, tell me about them. I can't tell you where they were, because I don't remember. Uh, both were on the French, near the French border. Uh, one was with insulin, and uh, I picked her off right off the bat, and it's simple. Uh and Bader, now Bader has done, he did something in his lineup that I had never seen before. And I was raised in a law enforcement family. Uh, my dad was police chief in my hometown as long as I was growing up. And I hung around that jail a lot and, and uh, the police. And uh, I'd never heard of this, and it hasn't happened since. But when they brought, we, we were in a, a big theater, like a movie theater with a high stage. And they started bringing people out and, and uh about the fourth one out was Bader. And I recognized him just from his photograph. Now, I never saw Bader in person. Yeah. But I recognized him as he was coming out on the center stage. And before he got center stage, he started yelling in English, pick me, I'm the one you want. <laughs> well, that blew the line up. See? And I thought, that is one smart cookie <laughs> to blow a line up like that. Absolutely blew the line up. And uh, we were all in the dark and had lights in his face and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's it's amazing. I've never heard that, uh-uh. but that, that exact thing, they must have talked about that amongst themselves because Ulrika Meinhof did the same exact thing. Is that and right? It, it yeah. probably happened after this because they had prepared the other women in the lineup for this. So here's what happened. They brought her out for a lineup, and she started screaming, I'm Ulrika Meinhof. Now, yeah. what did the other women in the lineup start doing? 
they started screaming it too. I'm Ulrika Meinhof. I'm Ulrika Meinhof. And so I likened it. It was like a weird version of the TV show to tell the truth. You know, they're all standing up screaming this to to, to kind of not confuse them. And I'm going to suspect... Botter, Andres Botter, when he did that, he he was onto something, and the police probably learned their lesson when it got to Meinhof's thing. So you probably were the witness to the first time that had happened. I've never, never heard of it since, never seen it since, and I probably conducted 50 or 60 lineups in my CID career, and no one ever did it. And I've never seen it on TV, even, even in these cop shows. And I thought that's just how intelligent these people were, because yeah. it runs, it blows the line up, absolutely blows it. And uh, they can't use it in court, can't, can't even talk about it in court. And, uh, and I thought well, that's pretty slick. That's so you you about. ended up testifying in several trials. It sounds like two mm-hmm. trials. Well, yeah, but I can't remember who it was. So and it was uh, there was um, trials. Um, did you testify in the Stamheim trial uh, in uh, in Stuttgart? No, I didn't go. Both of mine were uh, near the French border. Okay. But the lineups and the trials. Okay. And I can't remember. These are small towns I had never heard of. And this and these were, this was, it wasn't Mulhausen, was it? Uh, I, I'd have to look on the map, and I may not even remember the name of the town. So, and uh, this was um, for the 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 bombings at, at of course, your place. It wasn't right, for some right. of these other crimes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the problem I had with testifying was that they would not let me read any of the statements I had made earlier. Now, the, the time of the statement and the time of the trial was six years later. Hmm. And uh, and they were asking details about, well, one was the insulin trial. One was the insulin because they kept asking me about her uh, makeup and her dress and go, going back over the same thing I told BKA. And I said, well, I need to look at my statement. And they said, no, you can't do that in Germany. You can't do that. So... You know, it was really kind of a, a messed up deal. Uh, I had an interpreter with me, and by that time I was somewhat conversational, and I knew what the question was when when they said it, and I would give the answer back in either English or German, and I knew that my, my German wasn't fluent and it probably wasn't even correct, but I knew they could understand my answer, and then finally just told me, "No, don't do that. Just speak English, and and we'll take the translation since you're not fluent." And, uh, but I, you know, I don't know. It it was just a terrible thing, and and the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with how German courts work, or at least in this, in this case, the prosecution. A little bit. What, what do you mean? Well, the prosecution and the defense asked the judge the question, and the judge asked the witness. They couldn't they couldn't ask me direct. They had to pose the question to the judge, and if he thought it, you know, was pertinent or a good question, he had asked me. Was there just a single judge, or were there several judges? Uh, there was there was just one judge on my deal. Okay. Yeah. There may have been others. You know, I can't really remember. I only talked to one guy is all I remember. Okay. And he was, you know, really on a high bench. I mean, he was pretty good ways from me in a way. I had to use a microphone. <clears throat> he was so far away. But, How long was the testimony? Uh, about an hour, hour and a half. And, and was there an enormous amount of security? Yeah. It was. Uh, my uh, interpreter told me that he said this is a secret location, <laughs> and uh, and that's where we did it. And uh, and uh, this guy had been a uh, soldier in World War Two, and he was one of these older Germans. You know, the 
he called himself an exact German. And, you know, he spoke Hochdeutsch and uh, everything about him was perfect or perfect. You know, uh, he's a good guy, but he, he was a rigid, rigid German. Sure. And uh, an older fella. And I come to love him, really. He was a good man. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was an entirely different setup in the court. I wasn't prepared to have, have all these questions. Now, they throw the questions to the judge, and it took me a couple minutes to figure out what was going on. Because one had asked a question, another one asked a question, and finally the judge would ask me something, and it was entirely different than what these two posed. You know, and <clears throat> it caught me off guard just a little while. Oh. So you're hearing them thing. ask the questions, and then he's turning around and asking them the way he wants to ask it. That's right. And huh. I, I would assume that the judge's question is the only thing that went on record. I may be wrong, but uh, that's the feeling I got, that he's asking the question that's going on the record, and the other two are just suggesting things to ask. And I thought, well, that's a screwed-up system, you know, but maybe it isn't. Maybe that's the right way to do it. I don't know. Now, you 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 served through, you're saying two tours in Germany. When when did you leave Germany? <clears throat> well, the first time was 74, August of 74. I was on the plane, uh, and they announced that Nixon resigned on the wow. plane. And then I went back in 76, uh, uh, probably around uh, August of 76. Were you September. back in Frankfurt? Yep. Went right back. Went back to Frankfurt and CID. Were uh, you there um, during when the when the they had another bombing there by the Bonner Might Enough group? Well, I was I was in Alabama then at the CID Academy. I was teaching uh, teaching there for the, the new guys, and I heard about it on the news that they bombed it again. And I thought, won't these people learn? You know, the, you know, the military mean won't they won't they learn how to protect themselves? But, I'm not sure if anybody got nobody got killed in that deal, did they? No, no. There's some. There was, I think, like 17, 13 or seventeen people injured, but nobody was killed. I, I spoke to another gentleman, which I, I don't know if I've got his interview up. I'm, I've been had a problem with getting my interviews up. Um, that he he was actually there for both of those bombings, um, which was amazing. This the situation this guy is in. He actually witnessed both of these bombings and later, about three years later, he was at um he was at Oktoberfest in Munich where some crazed anarchist killed a bunch of people. Um and he was almost a witness to that bombing. He was there when that had happened too. So yeah. a lot I of stuff was going on Germany at the time. Too, I believe that's on your website. I'm sorry, par- pardon me? But the guy the, the the guy that was at both of them I think Yeah, the, yeah him. Website. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I wasn't injured in that thing, uh, and only by the grace of God I wasn't injured because of so much stuff lying around. Uh, and the only after effect I had of that was for probably four or five years later, or during for the for uh, once in a while, for about five years later, I would hear those bombs in my sleep, wow. and it jar me out of bed. <clears throat> they were so loud, uh, I thought that rotunda was coming down. It was so powerful and so loud. Uh, and I guess somewhere in my brain it that kept <laughs> kept a record of it that I'd replay that in my sleep. You know, I'd, I'd jar out of bed, and it, it was just as loud as the day I heard. You know, and up to that point, the loudest thing I'd ever heard prior to that was a hand grenade that uh, we threw in basic training. I thought that one loud son of a gun, you know. And uh, but this thing was louder than that. Wow! It was it was awesome. 
Now, the the first couple of people I had interviewed, or one of them, what, sort of described the bombings differently than than yourself. And you were obviously more directly there, but they had described a um, bomb that was inside the. In addition to the officers' club, one that had blown up inside the. Um, the uh, the main Ige Farben building, but I, I'm confused. Maybe they were confused. What what what's your recollection of exactly the placement of the bomb or bombs and how that worked? Okay, uh, in the in the foyer of the uh, Farben building. Yep. As you walk through the the right front door, the, like there's about six doors from right to left at, at the very main beginning of the entrance. Uh, and those doors stand probably 10, 12 feet tall, three feet wide, double doors. I think there were sets of, probably four sets of double doors going in. Immediately to the right, as you enter the first door into the foyer, uh, was a telephone booth in the very back corner. Uh, and then adjacent to that was the EMP desk yeah. uh, with a, a small office, you know, with a glass sliding glass front to it, you know, we could talk through the glass if you needed to. I think the bombs were put inside that phone booth. Now, it was bigger than our standard American phone booth. It was solid oak, dark walnut colored, and it had a wooden door that had just a little window in it. And uh, when you open the door, even in daylight, you couldn't see inside that phone booth. The light didn't come on. And even when it was closed, it was a very small light in there, just enough light that you could read the dial phone number. And I think that's where they put them. And they, it was just, at least they were in that corner, if not inside the phone booth. So and there I, was a bomb there, or bombs, and then there bombs. was a bomb over in the officers' club. That's correct. And, and was, did they go off at the exact same time? Well, the, or the, within the seconds? One, no, the, the, no, the the two in the Farber building went off almost simultaneously. There might okay. have been a second or two delay. Okay. Uh, and then at the, at the back of the obstacle, that's probably a minute to a minute and a half delay after that. So that might have been a timer. And it could have been command detonated as easily. Uh, but it was not in the building, best that I, that I know. I think it was outside against the uh, portico wall is where I think it was. Sure. And I, there might have been a car parked there, even. I'm, I'd have to get those pictures out to look to be sure, but there might have been a car there uh, that suffered damage, uh, which was within probably 15 feet, 20 feet of uh, Colonel Bloomquist. Well, I'm just wondering what kind of lingering questions you have, because it sounds like there was, um, you know, obviously it was a kind of a central experience in in your young life at the time, and what stuff that later you wondered what was going on, like with that, like you were talking about with the, with the military intelligence, is there other things that you wonder what was happening, what connections there were that, that weren't totally answered? Well, I can just tell you my inner feelings mostly. I think, I think, well, the BKA, I dealt with them a lot, you know, in the, uh, from 72 to 74. And then again, around 78 or 79, somewhere through there. We talked about just old times, but I learned a lot from them, so I don't know that I have any particular questions. Now, speaking from a, a victim stand, standpoint, I thought and still believe that this terrorism stuff is a bunch of cowards, yes. that I would have gone toe-to-toe 
you know, one-on-one with any of them. You know, gun, knife, bayonet, I don't care. Uh, but I thought that was so cowardly to do that. And uh, it, it, it kind of, you know, a miniature picture of it, I kind of got my feelings hurt, you know, by them. I thought, why would you kill me? I had absolutely nothing to do with the Vietnam War. I have absolutely no political power. Killing me, killing Colonel Bloomquist has nothing to do with the price of eggs. You know, it is so far-fetched. Why don't you go blow up somebody in Vietnam or go for a politician? You know, why Why us? We didn't do anything to anybody. And uh, <clears throat> I think I dealt with that a little bit. But I think probably any victim of a violent crime probably says, why me? You know, what did I do to you? You know, so... Uh, you that know, I, it, th- th- I think that's like the central question. For for me, um, I don't know if you read a part of my site, but my dad was, uh, he was a, a EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Tech, uh-huh. in Berlin. And he happened to fly into Berlin literally the week after Botter was broken out of custody, pretty much in the same neighborhood we lived in. And my dad was the head of the bomb disposal unit for like two and a half years, right during the height of the Bader-Meinhof era. So my dad ended up diffusing a bunch of bombs. He thought they were Bader-Meinhof bombs. I later realized they were probably this kind of uh, uh, side group that was friendly with them called the Movement June 2. And once they um, they they left a bomb where my mom was having lunch at, at an officer's club, um, which did not go off. My dad diffused it. Another time they left a bomb... Um, there was a, at uh, Templehof Airfield where they had the Berlin airlift, they had a display like a C-47 and on one of the wings in the wheel well, they, or they, like they had put a bomb at the foot of the wing and at the wheel well, they had put another bomb. Um, and my dad started defusing that bomb at the wing and got his buddy looked up and saw the other bomb inside the wheel well. And they pulled that down and realized that was designed to go off earlier. In other words, the first bomb was sort of a decoy and the second bomb was designed to kill my dad. And, um, so I look at these things and I go, man, clearly had they killed my dad, they would have entirely justified. They didn't know who they were going after, but they would have said, Oh, they would have come up with some justification that it was bringing the Vietnam war home. They might've found out my, of my dad's Vietnam experience and decided, well, it was because of this either way. It was all justification that they that they came to after the fact and it was ridiculous and it's all ridiculous and that's that, that's the central challenge of my website because i'm i'm fascinated by these people i really am um but i certainly don't romanticize them and i think a lot of people do and they forget that the the central thing is is that a they were wrong both if you're a left winger or a right winger in retrospect they were clearly wrong. They may have had challenges the system that we could all argue with, but their method of going about it was terrorism. Yeah, and that exactly. is wrong, and it was counterproductive even if you supported what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the, you know, and the, the, the wake of victims, both people like yourself that, that it, it affected them afterwards and the family members of people that were killed is just tragic and it's rarely ever talked about, you know, the, the family members of all these people that were killed by them and the tragedy. I mean, it's just a real crazy, crazy time and people don't seem to take account for the devastation that these people caused. Yeah. You know, there was another thing too. I can't remember. I've been trying to remember this guy's name, but he worked for his, uh, he was a PSC, I believe. And he was not 
he should not have ever been in the military. Mm-hmm. And he should not have ever, ever been in the military police. And he he was just a just an oddball. Well, he was on my shift. I, I would take him where the other sergeants wouldn't take him. I said, well, I'll take him and I'll kind of watch after him a little bit. He's, I said, he's basically okay, but he wasn't military material at all. Yep. And after that bombing, <clears throat> uh, while we were waiting on answers to show up, and uh, we didn't have, now we had people that were cut and bawling and squalling and bleeding a little bit, but nobody was going to die out of that 90 or so there. Uh, we were waiting on answers to show up and doing a little triage for him. This guy, this MP, his PSC, was standing at the front entrance with his 45 out, locked and loaded with hammer back, standing there with the pistol at his waist pointing straight out. And I walked up to him, or close to him, and I told him, I called his name. I said, holster your weapon. And he turned toward me and just started staring. He was in shock. So I moved to the right. He turned with me. I moved <laughs> to the left. <laughs> you know, and I thought, I'm going to feel it burn just any minute, you know. And uh, I walked up to him and took it away from him. Oh and I God. thought, that's exactly why he was not supposed to be where he was, you know. Uh, he, you know, he just freaked out. And I think... Uh, most of these guys with me, maybe all of them were drafted. They didn't want to be in the Army. They didn't want to be there. Uh, and they, they responded like civilians did. They, they just hit out, you know. They didn't want to die that day either. And, but Ted Boy and I were on two that, that uh, got to, got rolling and, uh, the others were standing around like dazed and didn't know what to do or anything. And, uh, and I thought they were closer to the blast than I was. So I wasn't going to say anything to them about it, but. Uh, and this guy had that gun. I thought I made it through this. And I'm gonna get shot now. Getting this gun away from this kid. Jeez. Uh, <clears throat> heck, I was only 22. Now, oh. are you still in contact with Ted Boyd? No, I'm not. I haven't. I've uh, I've used military.com. Yep. I've tried to find some old buddies and uh, left messages, but evidently they're not hooked into military.com. It's hard. I know my dad, as he's recently tried to get a hold of people from Berlin Brigade, and every once in a while, you'd think there'd be a better system. I've tried to find, track down some of my old Army brat buddies, but, you know, just, it's it's not, not easy. Yeah. Um, now, what about, um, what about, how do you think I should, you know, I'd love to see some of the old, um, like, statements of you and some of these other people. Is there, do you know of where, where the military stores these well, records? I tried that myself. Uh, two years ago, I sent FOIs out to yep. Fifth Corps and uh, tried to get the, the general's report. was about three inches thick, maybe four. And I got a, a, a glimpse of that, and I read through it kind of on the sly. Yep. You know, the provost marshal let me read it. And he said, don't be long because uh, this has got to got to go back to the uh, uh, repository or what, what repository, I guess, is, uh, by a certain time, and I've got to get it back. And when, when, This really... is just a couple of years ago? No. Oh, this is no, at the time? Back, way back then, so I knew okay. I knew about the report. Yep. And I glanced through it real quickly, and I read enough to know that they were trained in uh, Palestine and all that, by Arafat and all that crap. Yep. And, yep. Uh, I left it at that. And uh, two years ago, uh, FOI had Fifth Corps. Uh, and they didn't respond, so I did it again, and I found out they'd moved to Savannah, Georgia, or Fort Stewart, Georgia, maybe. And so I hit them with another FOI, and they wrote me back and told me they didn't have it, didn't know anything about it, and they referred me to the National Military Archives. And 
and then the archives called me and came home and said, we can't, we can't find anything like that without an accession number. And Fifth Corps already told me they didn't have an accession number. They didn't know anything about it. So it might have been something that had a destruct date on it. Because, uh, you know, it was, after all, it was 30 years old. You know? Yeah. Uh, generally, I thought they kept that stuff for 40 years. but Or they or they do, and it's just <laughs> impossible to find. Yeah, yeah. That's too bad. So I tried to get that report just just to read it, you know, and see what all, who shot John, more or less, you know. And I, I can't get it, and I, I don't guess it's retrievable. Uh, I, I hit him with three or four FOIs real quick. And huh. Couldn't get it. <clears throat> hey, on well, this guy I was telling you about, they had that pistol. Yep. Pointed at me, it was kind of... They, uh, I wrote uh, uh, a memo to the commander and told him, based on what I saw that day and, and what I knew about this PFC earlier, that he was not uh, adapting the military service and recommended that he be discharged. Yeah. And they didn't do that. They moved him up to Bremerhaven. You probably know Bremerhaven. There's a port That's... up there, port city. Well, uh, hang on a sec. My, my other phone's ringing. Go ahead. Well, they moved into Bremerhaven. There was a small MP detachment up there. I guess they thought that he wouldn't get in trouble up there. And there was a submarine dock there. On, he was walking the, the, the dock yep. out there or on that port. And he, he messed around and shot out the glass of a periscope oh with, that port with a 45. And so he, he redlined the submarine for about a week. <laughs> then they discharged him. So They should have listened to you the point. first time. Yeah, we had a name for him something something like Gomer or Goober or something because he uh, he just he just wasn't he wasn't military he, he, he couldn't beat it into uh, almost like he had a little touch of autism or something you know. Boy, that would have been a tragedy had he shot you or somebody else yeah. in the aftermath of this horrible horrible yeah. bomb. Yeah, so. but he was shocking, and I recommended psychiatric treatment or at least evaluation on the way he responded to the to the crisis. You know, he, he knew he was supposed to pull his weapon, but he just wasn't quite sure what to do with it. It's basically what it boiled down to, and uh, he wouldn't put it in his holster, and he wouldn't take it off me once I approached him and told him to put it up. And uh, so he didn't, I don't know what was going on in his mind, but I thought he might pull the trigger. But, you know, we got to get this gun away from this kid. And, and so when I put my hand on the barrel and moved it, he didn't, he didn't fire. And uh, I thank the Lord for that. Also... My office in there, a couple of days later, I went back in there and sat down. And I looked, and directly in front of me was a hole about the size of a golf ball. Yeah. And I looked behind me, and in a marble wall, there was a shrapnel about the size of a golf ball. So had that guy not come up to me to tell me he had a personal problem he won't talk about, I would have probably been sitting at that desk when that bomb went off. Yes. It was only like four, five, six minutes difference for me at that desk until the bombs went off. I'd have got killed that day myself. It would have hit me right between the eyes, probably, or nose or somewhere through there. So uh, so the Lord spared me twice. That's the only thing I can say. You don't know why. But, you know, I read the colonel's bio uh, the other day, and, and uh, he, he's a remarkable military background. Lieutenant Colonel Bloomquist. Yeah. yeah, very remarkable. Yeah, I've... I've um... I definitely would like to track down his family. I've heard about. I, I spoke to one of his daughter's classmates, and and uh, they talked about how it was and how she returned to school after this happened, and it was just it was just a crazy, crazy, awful time. And 
And uh, it's not, it, it clearly was just a guy at the wrong place at the wrong exactly. time. Exactly. You know, I, I grieved over that for a long time, years. Uh, I guess it's survivor's guilt, a little bit of it. Sure. Uh, but I thought, you know, we did our job, though. That, uh, they did not penetrate the building. Uh, we did what we were supposed to do. And I, I finally realized that several years later, where you did your job, they didn't get in. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's the deal. Because they could have done a lot of damage in there. Uh, we had a CIA group in there. Uh, one of them was a bureau chief. Uh, I mean, high-ranking CIA uh, officer. And uh, all kind of super classified stuff in there. Super classified. And uh, uh, that's another story. Uh, around 77, 78, I walked back in the Farman building, and they had actually built this newsstand in, in the rotunda yeah. uh, it was an old german couple that had run it when i was there before he had died and the, and the old lady was still running it real modern uh nice and then i went in the cafeteria i had something there uh, i think i had a witness to a crime or something i can't remember that what took me back to the building but uh, the first time i'd been back there since uh 74 or, or excuse me early 72 and uh I went through the snack bar, and there was a top-secret cover sheet by the coffee maker. And uh, there weren't many people in there at all. And this snack bar is pretty large. It probably seat 200 people. And I thought, somebody left a cover sheet here. And I picked it up, and there was a document underneath. It was all in crypto. And I went, gosh, I'm mighty. Somebody's butt's in trouble now. Yeah. Well, I had a top-secret clearance. So I, I, I waited, and I went and sat down. And, and uh, put my notebook on top of that paper and, and the document and watch to see if they may come back to get it because I knew they'd be panicking and crapping their brain. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no one, I said, just about 10 minutes left my coffee. Well, I, I went to the message center, which was in the basement, and uh, told them, you know, I bashed them, told my CID, and found this <clears throat> in, the, in the snack bar, and you need to track down who signed it out. And, and boy, I got hit hard with the uh, MI they come down on me hard and uh on you had, for finding this thing yeah you know Good we kind of got a heated argument you know I, I went to their office they had an office like on the fifth floor you know previously they'd been in the basement down there somewhere on the other end and, and they Lord, just give me the 50 question rule about a finance find that anybody you know that's part of that I understood that they uh they had to ask all these questions because now they had a serious investigation to work on it uh, but I told them, listen, I've got the clearance. You know, and I said, you know, there's no breach here. I can't read crypto. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. And, uh, but it must have been a heavy hitter, uh, because years later, when I went with the Bureau, I had to have a background check. And we were working, my department, you know, it's fairly, we were working with the, the files of these witness security cases. You know, I'm talking about the secret, uh, you know, like your mobsters that turns yep. for the federal government that snitch all these folks off and they change their identity. You familiar with that program? Yes. Okay, witness security, they call them in the bureau. Yeah. I had to have secret clearance to, to work with those those cases, those files. They did a background check and they found a file at the Department of the Army that they wouldn't give up. So the FBI tried to get it and the uh, CIA tried to get it and the Department of the Army wouldn't, wouldn't fit it out. Had a file on me, and uh, in a post interview, I told them the only thing I know in that file might be that TS document that I found in Frankfurt, 
Hell, it might have had launch codes on it, for all I know. Good you know, Lord. What, what was in it. But that's the only reason that I know. And they're not it. talking at all about it. No. Been, uh, up, up until 97, uh, I FOI'd the uh, Department of Army. They still wouldn't, wouldn't up it. Uh, they said, you're not getting this file. <laughs> and you're not, knowing, you're not knowing what's in it either, you know. It might be might be nuke stuff because they didn't want to admit it people. Might have been. My it dad, might have been. my dad, he 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 tells me he says, yeah, <laughs> he was. My dad was trained for nuclear weapon disposal, and they didn't admit they had nuclear weapons in Germany at the time, right. but they had a bunch of people my dad worked with that all knew how to dispose of them and um, move them around and stuff. So clearly, they had a lot of them there. My dad won't tell me a lot about it, but. Um, but it was pretty secret. And the way my dad described it, he says, yeah, his particular security clearance, he figured maybe 200 people in all of Germany had his clearance for the specific work he was doing with uh, nuclear weapons um, safety and, and stuff like that. And a lot of that is because they weren't admitting it. They didn't admit it till I think, like five years ago that they it was yeah. all throughout um, Germany because it wasn't yeah. supposed to be there. They had them in Turkey and stuff, but. Yeah, well, I was on, on a nuke missile site in Korea. Uh, my first tour, my first assignment, right out of MP school, was in, in Korea. And uh, I had to sign a document when I left that for 10 years I would not publicly disclose that they were even in, in on the continent. You know? Wow. So, uh, yeah, I was on one. And uh, I slept by them a lot. <laughs> hey, listen on, on this uh, MI thing, though. Uh, on my second tour back to Germany, I went into a temporary quarters, which was like five stories up in, uh, in Frankfurt. Yep. And I looked out my window one night, and the apartment complex or building in front of me, uh, there was a window open, a, I mean a double double window or plate glass window, whatever you call those things, yep. uh, like a bay window. Yep. You could see into this person's apartment or quarters, which was their dining room. And there was this guy, butt naked, with his wife, and he was he was doing the number to her on the table. <laughs> nice. And there were little kids in the room, you know, oh like four or five years old, and with the curtains open. I thought, you know, that's kind of strange, you know, you know. So I just kind of filed it from memory. Well, I watch every couple of nights, see him again. And I thought, so I got curious, and I went around and and uh, looked at the name on the door. And it was Major somebody. I don't remember his name now. So I filed that just for information but on my own, you know. Yeah. So a few months later, I got a complaint against this guy for child molestation of a neighbor. Oh, my God. Neighbor child. Well, he was a major in the Air Force. So I went over and talked to the victim and got a good statement and talked to him. He denied it and uh, had the child taken to the hospital and said, yeah, there's been penetration. And, oh you know, the complaint God. was real fresh. So I locked him up, took him back to my office and, uh, he was Air Force, so I called Air Force personnel and told them, or the, the uh, security police at Ryan Main Air Base, and told them where I was, and I've got your major in custody down here for this child molestation. And you know, a bird colonel come out, <clears throat> and uh, he got me outside. He said, is there any way you can keep this from being known? You know, I said, well, yeah, I guess. But uh, he's got a, I mean, the Army doesn't care. He's your guy. But, you know, the, mil- the military police have a blotter system. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. The blotter. It's like a daily record of everything that happens in that jurisdiction. Sure. I had a, uh, I could either put it on the blotter or not put it on the blotter. Yeah. And uh, I didn't have the authority to not put it on the blotter, but my boss did. And uh, I said, well, why 
should I not put it on the blotter, and why should I wake my boss up? And he said, this guy is the go-to guy for nuclear strike in Europe. <laughs> oh, my he said, God. He is the top dog. And I said, well, I better get my boss up then. And so I got my boss up then. You know, I don't I don't think that, that guy ever faced any any kind of discipline. Sure I guess it's... Um... I guess that's the benefit of having a job nobody else has. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he's a guy with the codes and all that stuff. So uh, he probably Lord. they they probably got rid of him on you know you know without without the court martial or they probably just told him to go to home and go to house. Probably what they did to him. So uh, <clears throat> bunch of wow. that crap, bunch of that crap. Well, you've no, had I, quite a quite a career. It sounds like. Well, are, are you going to write a book? I'm trying to write a book, and uh, and so in addition to all this, basically what I'm doing is I've got my website, so I put stuff on the website, and most of this stuff ends up being part of this. And you've obviously made my chapter about the attacks of May quite vivid. Uh, well, you need to change the website. These were not pipe bombs. Uh, well, tell me these, about that. Tell me these about that. were, what I was told, they were at least the equivalent of 5-pound C4. Now, I know on your website there was some, a link there that insulin said that it was 80 kilograms of uh, TNT. Mm-hmm. I can't say that it wasn't TNT, but I know there was no charring or burning. There was no fire, and uh, there should have been black black stuff everywhere for worth TNT. And uh, But those, the commanding general board, I asked them when they were talking to me, and this was like a two-hour deal, and I said, what, what was it? And they said, well, it was C4. And uh, so that's what I have to go with. But, but uh, TNT, uh, it doesn't have the explosive power uh, as, as C4 would have. I imagine, I know they had contacts f- from East Europe where they obtained, like, guns, like Firebird, Czech Firebird guns and stuff. So it's possible they got C4 from um, from the East they're um, in different kind, different kind of bombs. They would do actually, if it said pipe bombs, that was probably because I got that from some yeah. early contemporary source that really didn't have info on it. The typically their bombs at the time, they they, they actually ran the gamut, um, but they they had like large canisters they would pour explosives into. They would put them in flower pots and stuff. But I'm, but in terms of like a traditional pipe bomb, I actually don't know that they that was ever done much, actually. Well, I've seen pipe bombs explode on TV, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they don't match what, what I saw. Uh, so, so you're definitely thinking... I don't know thinking... the ratio between TNT and C4. Uh, now, if you take insulin's report, 80 kilograms, that'd be 33 pounds yeah. of black powder. Uh, the black powder is certainly not, not a good thing to have go off, but uh, this stuff knocked out windows all the way to the seventh floor. Pot bomb wouldn't do that. And uh, so it was pretty powerful. Yeah, well, I will definitely look and see what I have on there and, and adjust that. Like like I was saying, a lot of what I have there was contemporaneous reports. It's only yeah, I understand. I understand. now a lot yeah. of what I'm trying to do is 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 really find out exactly what happened. You're You're definitely the person who is closest to those bombs that I've ever talked to. I've talked to yeah. many other witnesses. And then well, the second thing is, is I would definitely like to track down Klaus Junschka and see what the hell he has to say and see. That joke is probably dead. I, I don't, I don't think so. If he, really? if it, I haven't read that he's, he's died, 
um, most of the leadership, like Enslin and others, they, of course, committed suicide in prison. But he was released from prison in the late 80s. Um, There's no particular reason. I mean, he would not be that old of a guy. He'd be in his 60s. Well, I tell you, he looked to be uh, in his early to mid-40s when I saw him. Well, that, he may have been younger. It may have just been that he was scruffy looking. Actually, I could tell you. I have. Let, let me see if I can. Actually, I don't know if I can open up one of my posters. But, but he he was definitely not in his early forties because the, okay. the 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 oldest person in the entire group at the time was Ulrika Meinhof, okay. and she was probably in seventy two. She was probably thirty. Let's see. She was born, I think, in thirty eight. So she she was like thirty four or something, okay. and everybody else was in their. 20s, mid to late 20s. Okay. So he, sure he may have been over. he may have been scruffy, but he wasn't wasn't actually that old. But yeah. But well, the if thing he'd is, been cleaned up, you know, with a shave and a better looking outfit on, he he might have he might have looked his age. But he got a lot of wear and tear on if he was 25 or 28. You know. The thing I want to hear from these guys is, you know, I really want to get an idea of what their thought process was at the time. Mm-hmm. What were they thinking? How they felt had they had they internalized if they had killed tourists or 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 Americans or German nationals um and what happened later have they do they regret it because I've seen some interviews with some former terrorists who deeply regret the way what they had done and others who are just continuing to fight the fight and my personal belief is they the thought of Saying yeah, this was a waste. This was bad. Is just too too har- horrible for them to even contemplate. So it's more comfortable for them to not reevaluate their actions. Honestly, um, well, Richard, listen. There's another aspect of this. I don't know if you thought about it or not. These children, or these people that did this, are the products of the German war people. You know, the uh, their daddies and granddaddies, their uncles or somebody fought in World War Two and lost. Yeah, and there, there may be some ideology there. Uh, anti-American, at, at least under the surface of the society. I don't know. I know that, that I went to a lot of those gas houses over there, and there's old men were there, and they were talking their World War II exploits, you know. And then uh, they, I guess, eventually realized I was American, and they kind of toned it down. But uh, when I was in CID, though, I, the, from 76 to, oh, gosh, late, now 77 to 78, I was undercover doing drug work so i had longer hair i didn't have quite shoulder length hair but it was long businessman cut and and i had a uh, fake id you know for for i had eight or nine different ids I, i'd use but i was going around trying to buy dope and and uh, bus folks and all that kind of stuff and so i could go into these uh, german guest houses and I, I would look not military you know other than military and i'd pick up a lot of stuff they were talking and a lot of it was World War II, reminiscing, and wish they'd done better, and, you know, on and on. And so I thought, well, these, you know, my dad was the same way. He hated the Jap, boy. He flat hated the Jap to the day he died, as he fought him in World War II. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you're, you're, I think you're partially correct, and there's, but there's a, there's a different element. Um, it's clear, these people here, these, these, Kids grew up. These are kids that did not remember World War II. They were born after it or right at the time of it. And they grew up at a time when they started to realize about what went on in Auschwitz and other stuff. 
And this was a time when Germany was starting to accept this kind of collective guilt. People forget that they didn't really talk about what went on in Auschwitz till maybe the mid-60s. And so they started to accept this collective guilt, um, Germany, in a certain certain way. And a lot of these students started to think, wait a second, this wasn't us, this was our parents. And they would look around their own society, and they would go, so what happened to all these former Nazis that let this happen? They called it the Auschwitz generation. What happened to them? They're running the country right now. They're in power. They got put back in the same positions because the Americans, they had like a, a denazification process, but they stopped that process. Yeah. And basically, because they realized it affected so much the society that they couldn't keep them out of their jobs. So the people that ran the power department during the Nazi era, they ran the power department afterwards. And they would look at um, Kiesinger and other people and they would say, hey, they're still in power. So a lot of these young students started to think, you know, what it is, is there was fascists in charge of Germany in the 30s and 40s. And you know what? They disappear. They they didn't disappear. They continued to run Germany because they're still in power. It's it's a hidden fascism. So they believe that Germany was still run by fascisms. So then they would look at America and they'd say, well, these fascists are allied with America. And America has this total, they would call it an imperialist war in Vietnam, this Coca-Cola war, and our fascist government is their underbelly. So it wasn't that they hated Americans because they supported their parents. It's because they hated their parents. And they considered their parents, they considered America to be, to have gone against what they believed in World War II, I guess, for lack of a better term. And um, so they were, it was, it was, it was just pure, they believe there was fascism. The reason they were attacking America, their belief was that they, by attacking the German state and attacking Americans, they were going to bring out the fascist underbelly. They were, the, the German state was going to respond with so much violence that the German people would go, oh my God, look at, look at all these tanks in our streets and all this stuff that's happening to respond to these little revolutionaries. And they thought the German people would see those tanks and see the, the incredible repression, and they would rise up in kind of reflexive anger and overtake the German state. I mean, it was insanity, but that's what they believed. And the German state did respond pretty intensely against the Badermeyer group. And for the most part, people in Germany supported that. You know, they're Germans. They, they want law and order. But so so the so these terrorists they fundamentally misread the German people, but their reason for attacking America was the same reason they actually hated their parents. They were not; it was not a, a lingering hatred of Americans because of World War II. In fact, you could probably argue it was the opposite. They they just they were just angry at what they felt was the problems of the world, and America was the number one purveyor of those problems. It was yeah. classic Cold War thought processes. Well, you so. know, after 9-11, I was here at home and watching Good Morning America when that plane, first plane hit. Sure. And I thought, that ain't right. You know, there's something wrong here. And then, then the second hit, I knew what happened. I called up the Dallas FBI and talked to him quite his length and told him of my experience in Germany. I said, my gut feeling is that Germany may be a uh, uh, a hotbed for those terrorists, uh, at least financial backing. And, yeah. and I say that because the BKA told me that the uh, Bader Meinhof people 
<clears throat> had uh, rich people give them money. You know, they didn't want, you know, they didn't just rob banks. They got funds given to them. <clears throat> Whether that's true or not, that's what they told no, me. No, that's, that's totally true. And it, and and it's it's true in in a certain respect. See, the thing, the reason the Bottom Eye Group became kind of as prominent as they was. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the mid mid seventy one, you know, a year before your attack happened, they did a poll in Germany, and they found out like twenty thirty percent of young Germans in some areas were actively supportive of this group. They said, "Hey, if somebody from the Bottom Meinhof Group showed up at your doorstep," and said, I need to spend the night, would you let him in? And like 10, 20% said, sure, they could spend the night at my house. This is a group that's telling people they want to overthrow the German government. And people are saying, yeah, I'd want to do this. Now, it's important to know, this is before they started killing a lot of people. So it was easy to support them. And if you grew up in Germany and you were a left-winger in the 60s and you were kind of prominent, you firmly believed that revolution was coming and you thought it was important. But you also were a pansy, maybe. You didn't want to be part of that revolution. You wanted others to do it. Well, here was a group that's saying, hey, we're going to do it. So supporting them financially or or just publicly supporting them, that was a way you could kind of proclaim your support for this revolution. And the they took advantage of this. Ulrika Meinhof had many friends amongst the German left intelligentsia. And when they were on the run, she would show up at people's house and say, we need a place to stay for this week. We yeah, need to stay. Right. And they'd yeah. go, okay, I'm going to leave right. here. You have the house. That's what and, I heard, yeah. And sure what is. happened, though, was then they started killing people. And suddenly all these people that were supporting the Bader Meinhof group, suddenly they're confronted with seeing GIs. They're confronted with hearing about Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist, and they're confronted right. with seeing these other people dead. And then they started to go, Maybe I'm not so supportive of what these people are doing. And that's how Meinhof got caught because some, I think it was a professor, he was staying at her, she was staying at his house on the run, and he goes, screw this, they're murderers. So he turned her in, and that's how she got caught. So that, that support evaporated quickly, but that's how, one of the ways they were able to keep on the run. And, and the connection, you know, with the, with the, the the terrorists, I mean, obviously there was a huge, strong German connection with the with the the terrorists of today. It didn't have much connection with the Red Army faction. In fact, the Red Army faction officially ceased to exist around 1998. Yeah. That said, there's a definite milieu, and the German government focused so much of their energies and their really pretty effective anti-terrorist stuff on this internal homegrown stuff. That when the the um, the Muslim terrorists um, started taking root, I think a, to a certain extent they were caught off guard because they had focused so long on this this uh, white German terrorist uh-huh. threat. And at that point in the late in the mid '90s, they were focusing a lot on right wing um, extremism. So I think they were caught off guard. But even well, today, know, they made some mistakes. Now, uh, even in gosh, I noticed it. A little bit from '71 to '74 of getting in uh, uh, Middle Eastern immigrants. Yeah, they were using them, using them as workers mostly. But from '77 to '79, well, they were everywhere, opening up restaurants and all that stuff. And from Tur- thought, you know, mostly from Turkey. Yeah, yeah well, I, Pakistan too. You know, we yeah. tell the, the way we told the difference between Turkish and Pakistani. But that gun Pakistanis would wear a suit and white tennis shoes. 
Yeah. And I don't know why they did that. They did it. I guess they thought they were modern or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that's how we could tell Pakistani. Yeah, the suit and white tennis shoes walking down the street. And my landlady, <clears throat> on my first tour, after I left Frankfurt and uh, started going to CID, I moved to Bootsbach, Germany, which was a little bit north of Frankfurt. And uh, I had a basement apartment there and had a wonderful, wonderful landlady. And uh, she taught me a lot of German. Uh, every afternoon when I got off, I'd, I'd go over and have a beer with her. She'd teach some stuff. And, but now she was seriously, and he both, anti-Jew. I'm talking about, boy, they hated Jews. And I thought, well, that's just the way it is, you know, with these guys. But uh, And I'm I'm pro-Jew, if not, I mean, I don't want to hurt them. And I want Israel to exist, and I always have, and all that. But, uh, but I, I just kind of got a feel for what, uh, and these people were like in their late 60s yeah. when I knew them. And uh, I thought, well, that's just the carryover of that's uh, World exactly War mentality, that's... you know. They were wonderful to, to me and my wife. We were, I mean, uh, you know, at Christmas they'd, they'd have us, you know, for, for dinner and do Christmas for them. They were wonderful people. <clears throat> but, uh, they still, they still I guess as long as you're not Jewish. Yeah, well, here's here's the here's here's how the German terrorists, the 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 Palis, not Palestinian, the Muslim terrorists, and the German students that became terrorists were or young people were pretty identical in the in this sense. You would think that it would the terrorists would become you sort of think as Palestinian terrorists as like this oppressed people that they grow up. Um, you know, under the yoke of the man, and they're and they're uh, and they become suicide bombers or terrorists because of this constant oppression. And in reality, when you look at the people that were the nine eleven bombers, you look at the people that have been arrested in Germany as terrorists. Um, a lot of them turn out they are middle class kids. They're kids that were not particularly devout Muslims, and only later in life did they kind of come under the sphere of influence of some kind of radical mosque or radical sect that, that influences them into radicalizing. And that was the, what it was with these young Germans. These young Germans, they thought of themselves as fighting on behalf of the proletariat and the working class. Yet they weren't working class. They were middle class. They were, they were the educated class fighting for the working class. Well, the working class didn't want them fighting for them. They, they weren't even liberal. They could care less about this. And the same thing applies to, you know, the vast majority of Muslims in Germany. The ones that truly were lower class and scraping out a living, they are becoming terrorists. It was middle class kids that kind of had the luxury to become radicalized, similar to these students that became radicalized in Germany in the late 60s. So the parallels from that sense were pretty striking. And, and, and if I were to try to address um, how to prevent future terrorism is I would be really working on areas that were, uh, that were focused on impressionable, but entirely comfortable students, um, or that age, because those are the ones that end up, um, those are the ones that end up becoming, um, you know, they get influenced when they're like 18, 19, 20, and they've had a comfortable upbringing, but they're the ones that are easily able to convert their lives around. And that's what's happened even to this day. There's still 
crazy stuff going on in Germany in these things. There's there's zero as near as I can tell. Although there there's a little bit of a movement in Germany. There's been in the past couple of years there's been a wave of people firebombing expensive like BMWs and, and Mercedes yeah, yeah. all over Germany. And that's clearly like low level radical anarchist stuff. It's not quite bottom line off stuff, but you never know. That kind of stuff might morph into something more crazy. I thought at the height of people's anger over the Bush years that that stuff might come up again, but it, it didn't. So I think the thought of that is hopefully over. But well, you know, the, the, uh, with Obama in office now, yeah. this, this neo Nazi stuff might, might pop up and, uh, they're more dangerous far more dangerous than the Klan ever thought about being. And uh, these guys don't like anybody. And uh, you see them, I thought I would tend to agree, but I think on both ends of the spectrum, they can be pretty dangerous. But I, there, there's, there's, it seems like the, on, the, on this end, the neo-Nazi kind of end, there, it's often more of, there's a lot more lone nuts out there. Yeah. And on the left-wing end, they tend to be more, tend to try to be more organized. So from that perspective, it's scarier because you, you can hear about all kinds of lone nuts wanting to either go after Obama or just to deciding that the direction of the country is just the wrong direction. Yeah. So, uh, and I saw, I ran into some of those uh, the Nazi types and uh, Aryan Nation types in the, in the Bureau of Prisons. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, they're, they're predominant. Well, the Bureau is predominant with the Aryan Nation. And... Uh, and a few neo Nazi and uh, that other one, uh, skinhead, got a little of that. But the Aryan Nation is also prominent in the California system. And, you know, they've got that Hayden Lake, Idaho is their headquarters. And uh, they feed on this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, we used to get newspapers in from them. Uh, convicts would uh, order, they could get ordered just by any kind of magazine they wanted. Uh, the Bureau finally stopped the Gurley magazines, but we were getting in literature from uh, Aryan Nation uh, and talking about the mongrel races and all this stuff, and we had to stop that because they would <laughs> leave it around where the blacks would see it and Mexicans would see it, and it caused trouble, so we had finally had to stop that magazine from coming in. But to me, with Obama in the office, <clears throat> especially if he gets to a second term, yeah. this stuff's going to have time to get to a fever pitch. Uh, I've heard on the news here lately some people uh, threatening him in these bars and stuff, or even by, by letter, uh, that were, you know, kind of like your terrorists. They're, they're, they're not all there, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They'll latch on to a certain belief and stick with it, and they can't really tell you why, you know. So. Yeah, it's it's uh, it can be scary dealing with extremism, and it's and and the 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 scariest time is when it's quiet because then you're wondering who's spent the last two years getting angrier and angrier and you don't you're not aware of it and um so it's it's scary it's scary well we have talked for almost two and a half hours yes sir it's been enjoyable i I really really enjoyed your conversation i will probably call you again at some point because i'll have some other follow-ups but i definitely wanted to thank you for your time and boy i learned more about that particular attack in frankfurt than i well i told you all that i know and i think i knew most of it uh Maybe I, not, I, you know, my follow with BKA, I learned more. Yeah. Uh, and, and the questions at the general's board, and uh, I, I learned, I picked it, I, well, I found out why more so than uh, anything else about what happened. But, but I can definitely put those two in the building at that time. Yeah. Came up the front door where the bombs exploded, and she 
it's a railroad tunnel where I engaged her. Yeah. Uh, and BKA told me that she was there to shoot me. And then whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's what they told me. Well, I can tell you from, from her personality, mm-hmm. that seems entirely plausible. Yeah. It would seem odd that they would... It, here's the weird thing that they were that they wouldn't have. I, I'm not quite sure why they weren't just leaving the building immediately after they placed the bombs. That's the weird thing. Well, if, see, the only way she could have got out was behind me when I left. But you got to remember there were 90 people. They yeah. say 90 people. I couldn't. I didn't count them. But uh, she wasn't heading towards the exits when she encountered you. She was trying to go deeper into the building, right? Well, yeah, but she couldn't get out that way. Everything was locked. So the only way she could have got out was following me out, you know, moments later with the crowd. Cause all, even the, that's why I wouldn't shoot at the guy, because people were trying to get out of the building. And I thought, these people are behind me. But, but, I had before, to walk but before the had bomb to walk went off, off, though, yeah. Pardon? before the bomb went off, she could have just walked right out the front, the door she came in with, right? Yeah, that's why I think she detonated it, though. Yeah. That's why I think she detonated Well, she the fact that she went tomorrow. towards you and had her hand in her purse, I mean, that seems pretty provocative and and it seems possible what the bk is saying might might in fact be true because why didn't she just walk out the building after they set this bomb off yeah yeah so she must have went out with the crowd when the crowd went out because see right after that second bomb went off i went to the front and engaged this guy and and i knew those people were trying to get out because the doors were hanging half off there's glass everywhere shards of glass hanging you know in the doors even and people were trying to get out to the outside, and uh, I, maybe because they saw me go out, they figured, well, it's, yeah, he's going that way, I guess that's the way out. And uh, and that was the only way out. Uh, so she, she, she had to have witnessed the devastation of this bomb. She did, yeah, she did. You know, the but reason I point that out is because the parallel between, the, the American parallel to the Bader Mineff group was the Weather Underground. And uh-huh. the Weather Underground was... Early on, just as bent on killing and destruction as the Bottermeyer. Absolutely. In fact, they, had planned, uh, they had planned. They had planned an attack at I think it was Fort Dix, yeah. and um, they were they were planning on bombing a, 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 a dance. They wanted to kill as many soldiers and their wives as possible. Yeah. And what had happened was they did a, they did a bomb where it blew up and killed some of their own members, and. Um, in this townhouse, I think it was in New York City, I think. I can't quite remember. And um, and that caused the members of the group to stop and say, what are we doing? And they, from that day forward, decided, we're going to keep doing stuff. We're going to blow stuff up, blow up the Pentagon and other stuff, but we're not going to kill people. We're going to specifically do this. Now, you could parse it. I mean, I think they're still terrorists, but you could at least say they came to a conclusion that we didn't want to cause devastation. And I think it had to do with them seeing their own people die like that. And I could only think, man, if I, even if I was the most hardened terrorist, if I saw the devastation that that bomb dropped, that would have really sent me the other direction. It would yeah. have, not that I would have ever done it, but I couldn't have imagined seeing all that destruction and not going, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Yet somehow it was a week later or a week and a half later, that's when they bombed Heidelberg, and then they bombed Frank, you know, Munich and all kinds of places in the next month. Yeah. So clearly it did not have the same effect it had on the weather underground. I, I just, no. I don't honestly understand the thought process and the rage that must have been going on in their heads to cause them to 
block out of their mind the normal human reaction to say, "Wow, I'm hurting another individual." I, well, I, find the, the, that, well, I don't know that I don't know the connection between the two with Weatherman and the Bader group. I know it was in the commanding general's report. I read that part that there was some kind of a, a nexus between the two. Yeah, may, well, there may have been a, a there, uh, there wasn't. They, they were they were not connected. Yeah. However, there there's this there's a generalized kind of connection. The, the the biggest connection the Badr Mayav group had with anybody was the Palestinian PFLP GC, right. who or not GC the PFLP that 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 provided kind of training. And even then, that was tenuous. They the the pa- Palestinians operated these training camps in Palestine, and they would invite foreign leftists over there mostly to go through like kind of a like a Disneyland version of the training so they'd uh-huh. go back home and send money for these freedom fighters and the Germans they demanded quote real training but even then they didn't take it seriously and they got kicked out by the Palestinians right. um, and they would but they did have a connection because in 77 there was a, a, the hijacking in uh, Palma Mallorca and a plane hijacking of a Lufthansa plane and that was a Palestinian action that was helped by the RAF but there wasn't really a connection with the Red Army faction other than just a generalized we're in this from the same kind of perspective. Now, most of the governments at the time, they assumed it was a grand communist conspiracy and all these groups are tied together, but it really wasn't. They were doing things that were very similar, and they probably supported each other from afar, but they weren't that connected and the other thing is is a lot of these groups they had huge egos and particularly the red army faction they kind of hated the other terrorist groups because they they weren't as ideologically pure as them you know each one of them they would decide i um you know their particular flavor of Marxism or socialism was the right flavor and somebody was doing it differently or believed differently they hate it Kind of. Now, you would know that, but internally, they would just spend all their time bad-mouthing these other groups. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, which is about, uh, it's it's this movie that kind of makes fun of Christianity or whatever, but really what it's making fun of is leftist groups in Britain in the in the 70s. And there's a famous scene where this um, this this one little faction is called the People's Front for Judea. And this guy goes, I'm in the People's Front for Judea. And then this, and they go up to this other group and say, Hi, I'm in the People's Front for Judea. And he, and he starts badmouthing, what group are you in? I'm in the Judean People's Front. And they, they believe the same thing, but they have one little difference, and that difference means everything to them. So in Germany, the Bader Meinhof group, you know, they couldn't stand the movement June 2 people to, to a certain extent. These are the people that my that tried to kill my dad. And the movement June 2 people thought Bader Meinhof people were doing everything all wrong. So, it, you know, it's not totally correct to think that they were all tied together, although they did have certain connections. But I've never heard of a single connection between the Red Army faction and the Weather Underground other than... Uh, I think it's a philosophical problem. Yeah, a philosophical thing. That said, there, there's a couple of great called Bringing It On Home that, that draws the parallels between the group. Um, about the Red Army faction and the Weather Underground, which is terrific. But again, it doesn't really, it just sort of says, you know, they sprang up in that same milieu mm-hmm. independently, but identically, you know. Well, and, and, the, and it's just a matter of luck that we didn't have the devastation in America that they had in Germany. Yeah, well, that's what I tried to explain to the Dallas FBI. There's a nexus 
to a small, some degree, between the uh, the Arab states' hatred of the Jews yeah. and uh, World War Two era Germans' hatred of the Jews. Now, yep. uh, most of the World War Two people have died off, but those kids were raised into it. People my age were raised into it, and uh, and like I said, the age difference at the time of the bombing to me to the terrorists was essentially same age group. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I grew up with my dad hating the Japs, and if it had been the other way, I'd grown up, grown up hating Germans, you know. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't accept it either way. But uh, I just knew it was World War and all that, and I, you know, but... Uh, well, you bring up actually... There's a nexus there. You bring and, up actually a really good point, because when they first started out, they were saying, our parents are the Auschwitz generation. And they killed all the Jews, and we and we condemn them for that. And in reality, there was such a strong undercurrent of anti um, of anti Semitism to the Bader Meinhof terrorism and other stuff that it, it's almost amazing that more people don't bring it up. The, um, and they would qualify; they'd say, "Oh, we're not anti Jew; we're anti Zionism. We don't right. like those Zionists." But in reality, when you're focusing on that. It's just pure, pure and simple anti-Semitism, and there's a kind of a terrific documentary um, called Protagonist, and it's a weird documentary. But they interview a former member of what's a group called the Revolutionary Cells, which was a terrorist group in Germany, similar to Bader Meyer group at the same time. And this guy's name was Han, Hans Joachim Klein, and he was a member of this group, and he was affiliated with Carlos the Jackal, and they they took over that plane in Entebbe, and that, that landed in Entebbe, where they took all those Jewish people hostage. And he was a terrorist, totally committed, and suddenly when he goes on, when this raid is about to happen, he realizes, wait a second, all they want to do is take over Jews and kill Jews. So he begged off because, you know what? His mother was killed in Auschwitz, and he started to realize, what the hell am I doing? I, th- this this movement that I've been part of has become totally anti-Semitic. Now, he didn't change his mind enough to stop the raid, but it did cause him to leave the group and renounce everything that happened because he saw that strong anti-Semitic under current to it. And it was always there, which was ironic because they would claim the moral superiority ground, saying, no, we support Jewish people, and we think what happened in the Holocaust is awful, we just hate Zionism. But, you know, six in one hand, half a dozen the other. It, it, it's it's a pretty strong anti-Semitic angle, whether you can admit it to yourselves or not. And uh, I, I spoke to a professor, uh, I think he's a con- pretty conservative professor, um, and I'm a pretty liberal guy, but he made some really good points about um, the strong connections, the anti-Semitic connections, and how it drove these people, and how it drove them to f- have common ground with Palestinian terrorists. You know, so it is. It, it's pre- and at the time, Palestinians, you, they didn't think of it as anti-Semitic because at the time, a lot of the Palestinians were actually Marxist in nature. It was only later that it became really. Uh, sort of nationalist in nature and and anti and overtly anti-Semitic, but it was always the undercurrent. It was always there. So, well, Any, anyway, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Okay. Um, but man, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, me too. You. Uh, it, I, it, I really enjoyed it, Richard. And stay in touch. And well, I definitely will. You write I'll, a book. 
when I when I have uh, the when I have this website up in the next couple of days, I'll this page up. I'll send all to to condense our interview and do other stuff. I'll send that to your way. But if you ever now, you mentioned you're you're going to have your daughter scan some photos. I'm really yeah, yeah. look forward to seeing them. Maybe when you get them, if if you if you are able to email them to me, maybe I'll call you again and we can just look over them and, okay. and maybe it might refresh some other memories. You know, we'll look over them one at a time and and see what yeah. they what they prompt. I, I, I believe I have a photograph of where Colonel Bloom course was laying. Oh boy, uh, I believe I do. Uh, I'm not positive, but I think I do, and uh, that may not be something. I don't know. Well, we'll take a look and see what you have, and and yeah. and you can send them my way, and then we'll we can talk about it. If it's something we're comfortable talking about, we'll talk about them. Okay. Okay. Well, cool. Especially if you write a book, please give me a copy of that. Book. Oh, I definitely will. I absolutely, hundred yeah. percent will. I've been somebody working on it for a long time, but um, I definitely, uh, definitely will. Well, one other thing before we go. Sure. <clears throat> I don't know your your religious background, and I'm not trying to proselytize anybody. Sure. <clears throat> but the uh, <clears throat> I'm a Baptist. And all Baptists, and I think most, well, most Christians anyway, uh, study the tribulation period, and uh, which leads up to the Battle of Armageddon. Yep. Uh, Germany is mentioned in that in that prophecy uh, under the name of Gomer. <clears throat> it's a, uh, in Revelation, uh, uh, Gomer relates to Germany, Persia is Iran, and Rosh is uh, Russia. They're, they are involved in that tribulation cycle up, up into and including Armageddon. So Germany's been a player uh, on the world scene for hundreds of years with different names, but different, uh, you know, different names and different whatever. So what's your thinking it all means? Well, there's going to be more stuff come out of Germany uh, up until the tribulation of Armageddon, whenever that's going to be. Uh, they're not. They're not going to be able to clean up what they what they've got. Uh, I, I still think that. Germany's not going to rise, you know, third right type stuff, but the, but I think they're going to be a seat of uh, worldwide terrorism into forever, uh, either either in uh, philosophy or in money or in you know hiding these people out. I don't know. But they, but they've got far too many Muslim people in their country for it to go back the old way, and uh, and, and we're getting that way, <clears throat> and. Uh, whether or not they turn on us or not in this country, who knows? Uh, but the Muslim world will be, uh, according to Scripture, will be the ones greatly involved in the uh, in Armageddon. And uh, I believe that the I believe that the Bible says something about the great whore, and I believe it, it's just referring to the, the Muslim religion. Uh, that's just just a belief. But well, Germany is it's not going. Germany's not going to fall by the wayside. They're going to be involved. And I, I can only hope, for your sake and others' sake, that it's a long time off. Yeah. I don't know. I know Germany is uh, is definitely um, definitely becoming more and more powerful, and the Cold War is definitely mm-hmm. over for Germany, and they are flexing their muscles. So, well, let me give you the entire picture. China was two hundred million men. They've already got it. They've already five years ago. They said it could raise two hundred million man army. Will come across Middle East, join up with uh, Iran and uh, all of the Middle Eastern countries over into Germany, and then uh, or Germany will be involved, Russia will be involved, and they'll attack Israel, and that's where the battle's right there in the Valley of Megiddo. It's where the Armageddon will be fought, according to the Bible. Yeah. So, uh, and you can see China is getting really big, really powerful. 
you got, you know, Iran wants to be nuke and all that stuff. And uh, at some point in time, something gets stopped in uh, Iran. Yeah, at the uh, Euphrates River in Iraq, rather, gets stopped in Iraq. There's some kind of a nuclear exchange there that stops that 200 million man army. But uh, the Germans involved in it all the way to the end, and you know they. That's why I say this. This is just a one chapter of a long book with Germany involved in it. So. Well, it's it's the entire book for me. <laughs> it's not the well, one I, chapter, well, and it's uh, it's success, plenty so. co- plenty compelling as it is on its own. So. Yeah. Well, this this whole deal though uh, never was publicly brought out. You know, my mother got a she read in the paper two days after this bombing uh, yeah. that I was uh, was in the hospital doing well. Yeah. You know, at, at Frankfurt 97 General Hospital. Well, I never went to the hospital except to be looked at. But somehow AP got a hold of it, run it in my hometown paper. She called the Pentagon. I don't know how she got a hold of the Pentagon. And they called me at home. They said, call your mama. <laughs> uh, I said, well, I'm not hurt. Some colonel. So I had to call her, and that cost me about 50 bucks back then. Oh, my God. You know, to call her and tell her I was all right. But, uh, but yeah, I'll tell know, you, my, you know, I wasn't aware of any of this history until... My dad mentioned it in passing after they, they caught the Unabomber. And my dad was kind of talking dismissively about the FBI task force that was, like, searching his cabin. And I go, what the hell? How would you know? What, what are you talking about? He goes, well, because I got the same training they did, only I got twice as much. I go, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, well, I went to the same school where the FBI went, but we, they, we did twice as much because we had to do nuclear and other stuff. And I, I had no idea what my dad did in the Army. And yeah. he told me, and, and he says, yeah, and I diffused Bottermine off bombs. And I'm going, what? Who the hell are Bottermine group? So I started researching and realizing, my God, this was interesting. But I didn't, I wasn't aware of any of that. It was, uh, my dad, he, he doesn't talk much, at least to me. So it didn't, so it, it, it came out kind of slowly in fits and starts. And that's where my interest was piqued by it, but yeah, it doesn't really talked about it. And most Americans don't know about it. They, you, you'll hear a blip in the next month because the movie's coming out. So you'll hear about it in the theaters, but other than that, it'll go back to being nobody hears about it at all. Nobody really cares. And it's funny because this was a time people think about Americans being targeted at nine 11, but they forget in the early seventies, Americans were targeted for death by terrorists, by an international terrorist group, and they killed Americans. And we forget about this. And, and, And Germany had their own war on terror, which was very comparable to our war on terror, you know. So it's it's kind of sad that we don't study it more, learn about it more, because there's a lot of lessons we certainly could have learned about it as we decided to fight our own war on terror. Well, that's what I couldn't understand. Most there were at least 200, 300 officers in that building, and probably 400 enlisted that had been through Vietnam. Yeah. They had seen children had hand grenades in the eyes, blowing them up and all that. They were firsthand familiar with terrorism in Vietnam. Why couldn't that translate over to IG Farben building? Yeah. You know, was it because they were out of theater that they felt safe? I don't know. I think but, it's, that's exactly what it is. I think it felt like we're in sort of mini-America here. Yeah. Who's going to attack us here? Yeah. And that's exactly why the Bottomayev group wanted to attack yeah. them there. They wanted Americans to be scared. They wanted well, Americans to feel like they were at war wherever they were. So, Well, if they had not told me to stand down that day, they could have still blown the place up, but it would have been from the street yeah. as opposed to the inside there a little bit. It would not have saved the colonel, though, because there was no security back there at all. 
Yeah. The only time we went in that close if we were called to an incident, which was maybe once or twice a year. And it was usually a stolen purse or something like that that you never found who did it, you know. And, uh, I mean, that was kind of an off-limits area. It's a club. We didn't go into NCO clubs either unless we were invited in because of problems. But uh, it was just, a you know, a little little safety zone for them to get away from all that other whatever. Yeah. You know, go in and have a few drinks and not get harassed, you know, by the cops. So, uh, no, I think they should have known. Uh, the collective wisdom of all of them failed there, too. They should have known they were a target. Heck, I, as a buck sergeant, I thought we were a target. I thought they were going to throw grenades at us. Well, I thought, or even out in the very front of that building, there's a huge parade field-type area. Yeah. That I, they could fire an RPG from there and, and, and hit us, you know. And uh, but instead, they walked them in. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic conundrum of how, how you know, how much is too much in terms of safety? I mean, we, we right now rightfully get frustrated as hell walking on airplanes, taking our shoes off and stuff. By the same token, it's probably making it, it's probably the reason we haven't had any terrorist bombings on planes since yeah. then. But is it too much? Is it crazy? Because, you know, the idea of shoe bombs is, you know, I mean, it's, it, you just, it's hard to know. And it's, and nobody after the fact is going to get faulted for being too, you know, overly cautious, but you're always going to get faulted if you're not cautious enough. It's 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 yeah. the age old challenge. Well, I tell my daughter when she goes to these malls in Dallas with her kids, she's got two two young kids. I, mm-hmm. If you see if you see something that shouldn't be there, like a purse sitting there that's not supposed to be there, or a suitcase or a briefcase or a package, get away from it. Yep. You know, it might be legit, but get away from it. Just make that a habit. You know, but uh, now what I fear is going to happen, Richard, in these big cities. They're going to get together, and they're going to go to a mall, and they're going to have a killing spree like they did at that airport in, I believe it was Italy, wasn't it? Yeah. They killed a bunch of folks. Uh, You're talking about Rome in, Rome, uh, yeah. in, in I think, 82 yeah. or something. Yeah, I think that's what they'll end up doing. I don't think they'll try to bomb it. I think they'll just walk in machine guns and yeah, suicide mission and uh, heavily armed and kill all they can and go out and fight the cops. Well, in general, that my thinking is, you know, when I, I think a lot about, you know, the possibility of stuff like this taking root again, and my, my thought has been the, one of the big differences between 19, early 70s and now is that police and law enforcement is really quite good, and it's hard to sustain a campaign of terror, especially deadly terror. So it becomes more effective to do suicide stuff. Because it's much, much harder because the, the FBI, they're honestly, they're really quite outstanding. And even the, the most challenging things, low-level stuff like those um, environmental terrorists that were, you know, burning stuff down in um, around here in Washington State and Oregon and stuff, you know, they got caught and they got caught for the same reasons others. And they weren't even doing deadly stuff. They were just, you know, burning down houses and stuff, but they're going to get caught and if somebody was killing people, you, I just can't imagine, like in Germany, they, those guys were on the run for two years, two solid yeah. years. Yeah. And I just can't imagine that happening in this day and age. So it's more likely, like you're suggesting, it would be some suicide thing like what happened at the World Trade Center. And like you're saying, at a mall or some other place. I mean, terrorists look for – that's the crazy thing about trying to respond to terrorism by being preventative. You're, you're, 
they're going to look for whatever's weak. So if you make it hard to get on planes, they're not going to go for planes. Where else are people a lot? Is it malls? Well, what, what concerns me, and I would almost put my left arm on it, that will happen. If you notice, they'll always say, you kill our children, you kill our women. But mostly children, you know, and they talk about the bombings or the stray bullets or whatever that we do in Iraq and Afghanistan. You kill our children. Da, da, da. Yeah. I, I suspect that they'll probably take a school over one of these days, a large school, and they'll have a mass murder going on right there. And uh, they will say that they're avenging the deaths that we caused over there. And uh, and that, that will hit the soul of America a lot harder than 9-11 did, especially if they do it in, in uh, multiple cities, you know, take over a school and do it. And, and the local police are not equipped to stop it as it happens. Well, they're not, although the one thing about it is, though, that, um, you know, the one thing that 9-11 proved is as things play out, despite whatever his belief is, they end up being pretty political, and they end up being cognizant of how the rest of, say, the Muslim community thinks about them, just like the Bader Meinhof group ended up realizing that their support among the left changed if their actions were perceived as unfair, like when they went and lured that one uh, one soldier out on uh, at a disco or whatever and, and, and killed him to get his identity card, a lot of people said that wasn't fair, which is crazy. They're killing him. I mean, it just it's crazy all around. And Al-Qaeda, as they were doing different acts, st- started losing um, support. And, and I, yesterday... I read the most harrowing thing I ever read in the last couple of years um, about this kid. I think it was in Newsweek or Time, but this kid um, who was like seven and in Iraq, he was kidnapped by an Al Qaeda. Um, and this and his son, he's the son of like a local police chief, chief of police. And basically, what they did was they um, they they took this kid and they tortured him for like two straight years in an attempt to get money from his parents or other stuff. And, um, they ripped his fingernails out. They, they, um, they stabbed him. I mean, what they did to this kid is the most sickening thing you can possibly imagine to a child. They did this. Now that kind of stuff, when it comes out, does have an effect on how people look to these people, just like what happened in Beslan in, uh, in 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 Chechnya when they took over that school and right. all those kids got killed. Now <clears throat> the Russians got a lot of blame for that too, but in the end it was kind of a turning point because people realized you got to be kidding me. Your actions led to the death of four hundred children. This right. is insanity. Right. So yeah. I, I I would think they would do that, but I would think that would be the turning point in terms of support among the people. I mean, I just can't imagine that because it's hard to, it's easy to say, oh, an American working on Wall Street is part of the imperialist power that's destroying us. But it's harder to say a child is. Yeah. So, But I don't know. I may be wrong on that. You never well, you underestimate know, the power column, of a terrorist to do evil. Yeah, at that Columbine killing, I yeah. got really, I got running hot real quick when I, uh, the news reported that the cops didn't even go in. They could hear gunfire and they didn't go in. Yeah. And I thought, now that, you know, you're paid to die. You know, That's, and, they, they and there's kids in there in dying, there. right, as you speak. Yeah. Pardon yeah. me? Yeah, kids are being killed as they stand there listening to it. You know, you're paid to die. Get in there and shoot somebody. Yeah. You know, there were only two of them. It wasn't like it was a, a gang of terrorists, you know, with assault weapons, you know. Agreed. That was, a, that was a tragedy. You know? Yeah. You're paid to die, man. Get in there and do it. 
But, Richard, I'll let you go. I know it's a lot longer than 30 minutes that we talked about. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate your time. So definitely I'll, I'll, uh, when I get that page updated, at least initially, I'll send that your way. And then when you, uh, if you get those photos from your daughter, um, send me a quick email and then send them along to me. I would love to see them and talk with you okay. further about them. Hey, uh, one other thing on your website. Sure. You, you've got that as the Shape or uh, Supreme Allied Powers Headquarters. Yeah, I don't totally it's, understand that. Is that okay. not, not accurate? Uh, Shape, no, it's not. Shape is a Supreme, it's an acronym for Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. That is in The Hague, Netherlands. Oh. And, uh, no, they're the big boys. But so this is just Fifth Corps? Fifth Corps, fifth, fifth Corps core Headquarters. Okay. Now, it can be written either as 5th, you know, like 5th, yeah. or as V, as in Roman numeral V. Yeah. Uh, they, they use both of them on that headquarters. So you had 5th headquarters in Frankfurt, and I believe 7th headquarters was in Heidelberg, I believe. Okay. So, But you might want to change that. Because well, I will shape. definitely change that. Shape, I've been to Shape. It's, it's just uh, all building probably four stories high, you know, I don't know. It's not real big. It, it, maybe a quarter the size of that fifth core building and uh and it's stuck out in the middle of nowhere in, in the hague but but that's that's where uh eisenhower headquarters was toward the end of the war sure. i guess they must have captured that area and took that building over well now it's of course where all of you know europe is housed yeah you know the international the european union and stuff yeah yeah so maybe because that's where it started that's where they chose to focus all of it i guess i don't know yeah, yeah. so well, well, i definitely change that to a kid, that might have been, you know, shape headquarters, you know, to them in their world, you know. But it was, I think, uh, a corps, uh, fifth corps had about a hundred, excuse me, fifty thousand troops. Seventh corps had about fifty thousand for a combined total of a hundred thousand troops and their dependents. And I doubt that that would have stopped the Soviet Union because they had like ten divisions on the board. Oh yeah, my my dad, my dad was. Um... He was in charge of basically all the munitions of Berlin. And there, so, and, and we would always say, you know, we keep this division here to keep the Soviets out. And my dad, he said, yeah, we would keep, we would keep the Russians out for about 30 seconds. He said, no matter how much they had in there, they were clearly just there as window dressing. So it was actually, if that turned into a hot war, every single, U.S. military personnel in Berlin was gone, dead, because yeah, it just wouldn't have happened. But yeah. um, and and in all of Germany, to a certain extent, it wasn't too much differently. I mean, they they would have been able to fight it a lot more. But it would it would the Soviets had so many people stationed in East Germany that it's beggar's belief. I mean, just in Berlin alone, they had like a million soldiers surrounding the place or something against yeah. I think like twenty thousand Americans. Are you familiar with Fulda? Uh, yeah, the full the gap. Yeah, well, I went on a uh, personal. We, we uh, drove through that, my dad and I, on our trip yeah. um, well, ten years I, ago. I did too. I went and visit one time. Then another time, I went down guarding the general. I was on a protective service detail with him. Yeah. He had received a lot of threats from different everybody. Everybody terrorists wanted to kill him, and he was commanding general of some forces in that area. And I went into a barracks with him at midday, and he had his aide de camp and all that stuff with, and. uh we walked into an orderly room, and there was a first sergeant sitting there, and he had on uh, his fatigue pants, but he had only a T-shirt on, and his office drinking a beer at midday, and he reduced him down to an E-5 on the spot. Jesus. <laughs> he went from E-7, or E-8 first sergeant to an E-5. 
folks. This guy's the front line of the Cold War. He should right. be sitting there drinking a he beer. Was, he was full to gap himself. And it was a, an ACR unit, or uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment unit. And uh, they had all the tanks and all that stuff. And he was sitting there totally out of uniform drinking beer at midday. So they, that general reduced him on the spot. Damn. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, you are on the front line, partner. You know, so. Yeah, well, I don't blame him whatsoever. Yeah. That's, uh, I know. Yeah. that's exactly right. So. Yeah, first sergeant knew better than do that. Well, Richard, let you go, son. I appreciate talking to you. I appreciate it, too, Larry. So, uh, man, I'll if you definitely... write a book, send me a copy. I will absolutely 100% do that. And if I have any answers of all this, I'll send you a quick email. Yeah, definitely. I'll do it, sir. Okay, thanks so much, Larry. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.